Let's get to know the dynamism of our human body and many of the various relationships that it has with other people, the environment and various activities in the creation that is life. Hello beautiful human, welcome to the Vital Veda Show. My name is Dylan Smith, I'm an Ayurvedic practitioner and holistic health educator based in Sydney, but of course sharing this all around the world with you wherever you are. We are sharing Ayurveda, the science of life, which the essence of Ayurveda is to attune you with your own nature. When you tune with your own nature, that's where your own human nature is and that's where perfect health lies. You, yes you, have the memory of perfect health. You just have to enliven it. And through many ways, you know, we teach how to bring that, how to allow that to strengthen and permeate in your life. Then the disease, the darkness, the imbalances will automatically dissipate. And, you know, Ayurveda is the science of life. It's it's really the, the called the mothers of medicines because it's it's established in that unified field of pure absolute consciousness of which everything manifests from including all the crazy intricate complex functional medicine um, aspects of medicine that coach jake carter speaks about in this episode and we're going to get into that in a bit but for you, those who are new, this is the Vital Veda show where we interview experts in the field of consciousness, health, spirituality, relationships, all aspects of life, which essentially tunes you to that state of perfect health, that state of purity, pure, absolute consciousness. And our guest to this episode is no exception to the fact that we really want to have the best of their field on this show. And Yep, Jake, Jake Carter, Coach Jake Carter is no exception. You'll see he's an absolute gun in his knowledge. He is full of knowledge. He speaks it fast. He knows his stuff. He's like an encyclopedia himself. So just to let you know, a lot of this is on the top of his head. He has, of course, he's referring to some notes for some of the statistics and studies, but yeah, a lot of it is coming from him. So Jake Carter has taken the world by storm, educating the masses in functional medicine and nutrition for a decade, marrying both traditional medicines and conventional advances. He's taught in over 10 countries, up to the point of taking 54 flights alone last year in 2019, teaching 20 different types of seminars. Jake is notorious for breaking down global self-limiting beliefs and paradigms around health. Ranging from hormonal, lymphatic, gastrointestinal, psychological, environmental, and metaphysical factors, Jake has had the beautiful experience with working with chronically ill mothers struggling to conceive, businesswomen, through to professional athletes. You will see that Jake can just dip into any subject and has a say about it. He's got knowledge about it, and his ability to, re- to retain that knowledge and connect it with you know all these multiple various aspects of information bring it together to a way that's relevant and applicable and kind of culminate some you know substantial conclusions and and utilize that knowledge is pretty profound we cover a lot in this episode it's top two longest episodes we've recorded the other being all about gemstones and how they influence our physiology and the industry but in this episode we we talk about the causes of skin cancer Um, is the sun really caused causing the skin cancer well the skin cancer rates are going very high but uh, exposure to the sun has been very, very low, so it doesn't quite match up, and dermatologists can't quite put a finger on it. What's what's happening? Talk about Jake's story of transitioning from a personal health trainer, focusing on hot abs, muscles, and looks, to a holistic, functional health practitioner. The potential dangers of high amounts of exercise and training, orthorexia and eating disorders, other eating disorders, orthorexia, anorexia, 
um, bulimia, binge eating and more. Opposing that to intuitive eating. The epidemics of body dissatisfaction. How to heal eating disorders. Breast implants. What does it mean for your physiology? What does it mean? Um, What to do if you're going to get breast implants post-surgery, during surgery? What are you going to do to if you're going to remove them? What are the deeper root cause of what's happening? Tattoos. What do they have? What impact do they have on the physiology? Um, Endometriosis. Melatonin. Supplements. What's the role of supplements? Is are they good? Are they bad? How do we navigate in order to make them harmonious with our digestion, with our body? The problem with probiotics. Jake's experience with plant medicines. The carnivore diet. A good look at both sides of that. This hot craze. Oxalates. The anti nutrients that are in the foods. What does it mean? What are the foods that are like that? Jake's meticulous research into medicine and COVID nineteen. And which has caused him to, he was sharing a lot. It was becoming big. That's actually how I found out about him. He was giving some true news and it was really good to, to get an impact, to get an insight on what's happening on the grounds. And, um, he, you know, he, as a result, he getting heavily censored and, and we talk about that. So it's a lot of good stuff in this podcast. We're going to get into it because it is a long one. If you appreciate what you're hearing, you can, you know, subscribe to the show, check out the other episodes. They're seriously awesome stuff on this show and i'm allowed to say that because i'm I'm interviewing people and i freaking love the interviews i love these people what they've got to share so it's it's bloody awesome there's a lot of good stuff and um leave a review take action give back um you'll feel good about it and it'll contribute to to overall um as well as that you can follow on instagram vital vader and also coach jake carter um he's got a seriously very informative instagram page um, so, and if you appreciate, you know, tag us both, Vital Vader and also Coach Jay Carter. And if you want to join the Vital Vader Facebook community, that is a space where we share, you know, we ask each other questions, not just me, but other practitioners, other people from their own experience who might have a, a more of an answer than what I have on that topic. Share questions, share anything. Um, if you want to, someone has free holy basil perb cuttings in their area or some sourdough starter, some SCOBY to pass along, or what about what's happening in this? Does anyone have you know information on this eye disease? Anything, so many things. Um, sharing, connecting, community. So that's the Vital Vader Community Facebook page. And if you want to have an online consultation with me, in order to make my goal is to make you self-sufficient in balancing your own physiology. So I give you the tools, the techniques, the diet, the lifestyle, and the herbs to trigger your body's mechanisms so that it can heal itself. For that, you can reach out on vitalvader.com.au on the contact page. And lastly, for now, um, if you, I just want to share with you a resource which we have on vitalvader.com.au. That is Friends of Vital Vader. It's practitioners, products, water filters, where to get the best gemstones, where to get the you know best meditation practitioners, yoga studios that I recommend that I personally have focused on, that I personally have either experienced myself and researched and, you know, I only, you know, you deserve the best. Never feel unworthy or unjustified in having the best. It is your heritage, but you have to accept it, claim it and expect it. That is a quote from my Guru's Guru Guru, my teacher's teacher's teacher, paraphrase quote, perhaps not the full quote, but point is you deserve the best and everything on that friends of vital vader is the best according to my research and my experience so you know it saves you hours of research where to get the best blue light blocking glasses water filter where to get spring water delivered etc all right we're going to get into this 
Um, and I hope you enjoy. If you do, give us some feedback. We love to read it, Jake and I. Much love. Thanks so much for joining me from from Perth. You um, when did you move to Australia? I know you're a bit of a nomad, but when did you kind of make Australia your ground? Seems like a good move coming from Manchester. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I've I've always been a little bit of a nomad, so I've uh, been living in Australia. I've been living in Australia for a year and it was quite funny because I was in Melbourne out of all places, like the worst place you could be in the world probably right now. Right um, now, for sure. Yeah. And um, we just had this gut feeling where we're like, we need to get out like now mm. ASAP. And we literally sold all our things within a day and the borders were closed, but we, we managed to we, – we'll, they can't really do anything about it now, so I might as well be fully transparent. So the, the, they closed the, the kind of uh, state borders to WA and we were like, we were phoning for an exemption from the state police, the federal police, the COVID helpline, and no one could give us an answer. In fact, we were just getting passed around like table tennis. And we thought, screw this. We're not going to wait for this incompetence here. We're going to sell all our stuff, book a plane ticket, and get our ass on the plane. And we did this two days after they closed the borders for WA. And when we were at the the airport, we told a little porcupine, and they said, do you have an exemption? We're like, yep. And on the plane, there's only like five people. When we got off the plane in Perth, we were surrounded by federal police, state police, but we just used the line that we were homeless. And it worked. (laughs) So (laughs) um, we, we managed to get out of Melbourne. This was before it all went kind of screwed and people like there was already like lockdowns and quarantines but there wasn't the whole you're only allowed out for an hour or you're not allowed out after 8 p.m or not allowed out before 5 p.m none of that bull crap i don't know if yeah. can you can you swear in you, your can, podcast? you can swear oh, especially when you yeah. want to express your views on the dictatorship that's exactly yeah bullcrap is such a soft word it just <laughs> makes it Ah, oh, terrible yeah so before the bullshit really kicked off um so we just had this intuition this this kind of gut feeling like no we need out and we managed to get out we moved to to perth and we've been here we had to quarantine in a hotel room where you weren't allowed to open a window or step into the corridor for two weeks but that was fine for business you know we just excelled um Mm. and yeah before that i did 54 flights in 2019 getting all that radiation um Mm. but yeah i was living in bali for a while and yeah, just all over, really. You know, just traveling, teaching, doing my seminars and that sort of stuff. We should actually be in Amsterdam right now. But you make the best of the situation presented with you. And we've just been on a road trip camping uh, across Western Australia, which has been absolutely beautiful and wouldn't change it for the world. Cool. And coming from Manchester, have you um, transitioned and adjusted your skin calluses, your sun calluses on your skin to be able to absorb more sun? (laughs) Yeah, you know, um, we don't use any sun cream or anything like this because uh, it's just laden with chemicals and toxins and stuff like this. So I never, never use anything like that. So you tanned? Yeah, yeah, fairly tanned to be fair. did probably catch the sun a little bit too much when we were out swimming with the sharks. But other than that, no, it's, it's not, not been too bad. It's winter over here as well, so it's, mm. it's quite good timing. I'm mentioning it because 
for those who are listening who have the pale skin and who come from, you know, the UK, like Jake, like I've worked with people from Scotland who are pale lads mm. and got them a good tan and it's very important to have the sun exposure and it is possible to incrementally uh, implement, you know, expose yourself to sun and slowly build up and like you like you have the calluses on your skin for the sun and you can, uh, uh, you know, build up the resistance. So. Yeah, yeah, you can exactly. Do it. If you're listening and you're pale, that's my point. <laughs> yeah, this, oh, I've got Irish blood in me because my, my name's Jake Flanagan Carter, you see, so it's a hybridated <laughs> name. So it's Flanagan, so Irish blood's like Scottish blood and that's going to, you know, the skin there is fairly pale. So mm. uh, fortunately, living in Bali for a while, that kind of enabled it. But I've not worn sunscreen now for years and, and I don't intend on doing so. You know, so yeah. it's all about just keeping antioxidants high, going in the sun um, in a controlled fashion, not obviously going in too much initially and then gradually increasing it like a progressive overload. And yeah, just, just working it that way. There's, there's many different theories when you look into like this, the skin cancer kind of like correlations. They found, you know, some people state that the lack of grounding was correlated to an increase of skin cancer because we're using rubber sole, uh, rubber soled shoes and we're not really grounding. We're not gaining those antioxidants from that skin to earth contact, which therefore increases the oxidative stress and many other factors we can look into kind of nutrient properties, which could create issues with skin quality and that could perpetuate any oxidative damage from the sun. So I'm not saying it's sun doesn't damage the skin it certainly does but there's other things what we can do to mitigate that damage what modern day life has kind of strayed from hmm. yeah many things and melatonin and even ironically the blue light people are saying you know too much exposure to the blue light on your skin and basically skin cancer is a impaired skin physiology i mean so as soon as you then it invites it and the sun yeah. can actually help that and whilst one skin cancer there's there's even treatments out there which it's, it's funny how few people actually hear of this stuff, but there's like a live virus called Rigvir. Have you heard of this? No. So for like some certain skin cancers, uh, treatment is used in um, Latvia and Thailand, and I think possibly some other areas, where they inject a live virus, which is non-pathogenic, and it targets the cancer cells, and they have a success rate with that. And there's also stuff like BEC5, which is derived from eggplants or aubergines. And you can use that. I think that's a topical cream. I'm not sure. Yeah, topical cream. Yeah, there's, there's, so there's so many different things out there as well. And what's interesting is, well, just whilst we're on skin cancer, when, when you're in Australia, you see all these different things for skin cancer, especially if you're in Brisbane. But yet more Australians die from suicide than they do from skin cancer. But you never see any of the kind of stuff out there really helping people with the awareness of that. Yeah. And another third, so I think it's six people die from suicide per day and another 30 tries to take their life. So uh, it's a huge thing when you look into suicide, depression, and you look at skin cancer, there's this, it's just it's kind of like messed up how it's pushed on the us that we have to do X, Y, Z, but really there's a greater issue at hand here, which is our mental capacity. And then we look at the quarantine, the lockdown, the economy falling and the collapse of that, that's going to create so much, so many issues. What we see a lack of care support and um, really open talk about. Hmm. 
Yeah, it, it already is. And Victoria is a prime example of, mm-hmm. of all the increase in suicides, which has happened recently. Yeah, and especially with the lack of vitamin D there. I mean, we were there yeah. for summer and it was just, it wasn't even summer. It was, in fact, we were in this new building, brand new building. They, 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 they stated it was a six-star building. We were living there for like six months. <clears throat> and that was just so toxic. I think it could have been from the, the carpet, the new carpet fumes and stuff. But it was just so toxic to live in there. And then when we went to Bali, to go to Bali off them, you would have thought we would have accumulated more toxins in Bali. But just from being in Bali, maybe it was the vitamin D um or something like this but we were just dropping fat because we were much less inflamed holding much less water we were feeling more energized and then i just found that melbourne in itself was such a toxic area in terms of pollution air quality lack of sunshine so all of those factors don't really help at all and then then you come along with this uh what's his name dan andrews is that he comes along with this kind of lockdown and it just makes things so much worse. Absolutely. And interesting, you mentioned people are injecting viruses um, to tackle cancer cells. They also, you know, they use viruses to treat antibiotic resistant bacterial infections. Mm. And it just shows like not all viruses are bad and there's no such thing really as a good or bad virus. It's, it's how, you know, how they're, what information they're giving, what's the environment that they're in, how to deal with them. Yes. Exactly. I mean, when you look at this, when you look at viruses, for instance, when we look at the species, we have 10 with 31 zeros after it. So 10, 0, 0, 0, 0, 31 times. That's how many different species of viruses we have. And then we look at the bacteria, we have 30,000 different species of bacteria. And then we have humans. Well, we just have humans, but we have like just 200,000 proteins and 20,000 genes. So really when we take things into that kind of perspective, it's not like they're a mistake. Even when we look at things like fungi, there's 5 million species of fungi. So these things which are heavily outpopulating us on this planet, mother nature doesn't make things by accident. You know, it has a purpose. Like for instance, with heavy metal toxicity, you could use algae like Corella or a Colonia Carva, and you can use that to get rid of the heavy metals. Or when we look at people with uh, early onset of Alzheimer's, there's certain candida, which can help to kind of structure the formations of neurons in the brain, which can help the brain be more functional. Or when we look at bacteria, we now know that there's also good bacteria, you know, from the probiotics and we need like bifidobacterium to increase GABA. And then now we know there's viruses which can assist us. So in the conventional world, it's quite easy to put things in certain boxes and put a label on that and put it on a shelf and say, well, this is bad and this is good. It likes to compartmentalize things into relative silos. But really, it's that equilibrium and that symbiosis and understanding that, you know, in all aspects of life, both internally and externally, there is an interdependent relationship where we need to support it. And there will possibly be a value for that thing. But there may also be an implication which comes along with it, too. And it's just aligning that with the individual and understanding where it fits in, which we need to do, which uh, we're gradually moving towards. But we've we've lacked so heavily in doing so for the past probably um definitely the past 1000 years i'd say yeah just getting rid of kind of rigid definitions and mm. being open to more fluid aspects of physiology yeah and all these aspects in our life you mentioned uh candida to help treat alzheimer's can you elaborate on that yeah so there's, a, there's a certain 
type of candida and it can help to support damaged neurons in the brain which has been inflicted from alzheimer's so it's um it's really interesting and you can even see bacteria in breast tissue as well so <clears throat> when there's breast cancer they can they, when they did um, autopsies uh, on on breasts or biopsies and they actually looked and found um, the breasts with kind of this bacteria there they they used to think this was bad and i think it's like spin spin Spingnomus yanokia or something like this. Okay. And that's, that's some bacteria in this normal breast tissue. But when it's sterile, that's when it's actually worst. And the more sterile the breast, the, the, the higher chance of dying from breast cancer. So the, the actual bacteria there can offset the, um, the cancer growth in the breast. It's really interesting. Hmm. Yeah, well, and do you know how, like, if they were using that candida as a treatment for Alzheimer's, how they would it's take not, it? It's not actually a treatment. It's a, body's, a treatment. It's the body's natural defense. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Nice. Yeah. So your body, you, your body's got this harmonious kind of process to keep you alive and keep you functioning. In in modern day world, we call these symptoms. <laughs> like, for instance, the cytokine model of depression is where you may have a pathogen and therefore you may be coming down with an illness. So what happens to your, your physiology and your, your mentality is that you want to seclude yourself away from other people and you want to slow down your movement and increase your sleep. And that's from an anthropological evolutionary advantageous standpoint because that allows you to not infect the, the herd, the tribe, the clan, but it also stops you from exercising too much and allows you to rest more. But when we look at these symptoms where you get social isolation, decreased motivation and increased sleep, that falls into the category of depression. But yet when we look at it from an evolutionary standpoint, well, they're just kind of things which can support our chances of survival if we are ill. And that's when we look into depression, it is more of a symptom than a disorder because there's over 40 different causes of depression. And cytokine model of depression is just one. There's other things which come into play. But we can see these symptoms, what we, we like to label as the, the baddie. Quite often, they are advantageous kind of mechanisms to keep us functioning and moving forward. But unfortunately, we're maladapted to the modern-day world with the onslaught of heavy metals, chemicals, EMFs, poor sleep quality, low nutrient food, and everything else. Mm. Yep. Before we get into more topics of health and really explore your encyclopedic knowledge, just dipping in many things, can you sp just tell us a bit about yourself? I mean, you're how old are you? I think you're similar age to me, even younger. So, how did someone at such a young age get so deep into the the science of health? Yeah, uh, I've just turned twenty seven. Mm, so, happy birthday. Yeah, thank you. And yeah, so my background actually started off as a personal trainer. <clears throat> um, well, I started off as a fitness instructor. I was at the age of 15 working in a gym without a qualification, getting paid £3.64, cash in hand, uh, kind of off the book sort of thing. And then because I was working there, someone from college 
who was a lecturer knew I knew my stuff and said, Hey Jake, you know, have you ever thought about being a PT? I was like, yeah, you know what I have. And he goes, well, you know, we could probably miss out a couple of years and you could just do one year and you could become a PT. It's like, okay, that's awesome. So I remember going to college and in the interview, the, the, the guy was uh, like, you, 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 you're really going to struggle here. You know, the, the, the team, what we have are, are quite smart. So you're going to have to work hard. And I was just thinking in my head, like this guy, does not even know me like at school I was terrible I was awful at school I used to I used to um, smoke a lot of weed and miss classes and do 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 the usual shit what people in England kind of do so I was awful at school awful but then I started training I started becoming a fitness instructor at age 15 and it was my it was my passion you know I enjoyed it so when this guy was saying to me I'm gonna struggle I thought well this guy doesn't really understand how much I want to do this. So I'm going to prove it wrong. And I just flew through college. When then I was 16, become a personal trainer. And, you know, the 16 year old really doesn't, doesn't really look much of the part in terms of the personal trainer world. Um, you, you're young, you're small, you're not fully developed. I don't even think I could grow a beard at that stage. And, I'm working amongst people which are 21, 25, 30 years old. So I was thinking, like, shit, well, I'm self-employed now. How can I stand aside from the crowd? And I really wanted to look the part to kind of be the product what I was trying to deliver to my clients. And then I got injured because I was overtraining. I got a bulge disc in L3, 4 and L4, 5. And that's when my mental health took a hit and the kind of thing what I was so fascinated and obsessed about, which was training, was taken away from me. And I was still obviously self-employed. So I had to really think, how could I stand aside from the crowd and really gain clients here? That's when I fell into nutrition. Because nutrition was a modality which I could control. And I could still do that despite being injured. So I was experimenting with all these different diets. And I really started to learn more about functional medicine and managing inflammation and the importance of improving gut health to help the body uh, really manage inflammation appropriately uh, along with like learning about other things to do biomechanics supporting glutes rhomboids you name it so i was able to get better from my bulge disc and this was despite physio saying that i shouldn't train and all that usual stuff they say and i started training again but i didn't really learn my lesson so then i had a slap tear in my shoulder and they this has knocked me back again and I went back to the, the whiteboard, so to speak, with nutrition. And this is when I started to delve into it more. And interestingly, at the time of my shoulder injury, I was doing a keto diet. And my body, in terms of fats, isn't that great for fat digestion because I've got an APOE4 polymorphism. I, um, I was partying a little bit too much, you know, going to illegal raves and things like this back in the day. So... My liver wasn't the best. And obviously, if your liver's not too cool, the gallbladder isn't, and therefore bile production is going to take a hit as well. So my body, in terms of its kind of genetic tendencies and my physiological capabilities, wasn't sufficient at producing bile. In fact, I got a blood test done, and my bilirubin was 47, which is ridiculously high. So it just really represented my lack of bile production. And because I wasn't able to produce bile, and doing a keto diet, which is very high fat, and you need bile to digest and assimilate your fat, it made a lot of issues in the, the kind of gallbladder meridian line. And I was getting a lot of knots in 
and around the right shoulder blade. And that the knots in the right shoulder blade then led to scapular dyskinesia, that led to impingement of the shoulder, that led to compensation, that led to the issue with my slap tear. So really, if I would have known more about the traditional medicine and Chinese medicine and meridian lines and possibly more on DNA and other things like this, sub subjective physiological biofeedback markers, I could have probably, but most definitely, um, stops that injury from occurring because I would have implemented more bitter foods, probably ox bile, just to help with the assimilation of fats, or possibly even avoided doing a ketogenic diet. But anyway, I didn't learn that until a couple of years after. But that enabled me to dig deeper and more and more into nutrition to the point of where I then became a kind of a team leader and then I started presenting nationally by the age of 18, internationally by the age of 20 teaching in France and Belgium and I think it was just no in fact it was nationally until like the age of like 21 or 22 I think it was and then it was internationally after that and then globally now for the past three years but I kind of detrayed from the health and fitness industry because I, I really don't like that industry at all it's it's too egotistical it's too self-centered, it's obnoxious, it's materialistic, and it's face value. And it's creating a lot of issues in society because people become obsessed about looking a certain way based off the, the scrolling feed from social media. And it creates these unrealistic values and it's, it distorts people's self-worth and it really creates a macro level of disharmony in society because it creates this competition, that egotism and everything else that I just mentioned. So I really don't like the industry and that's why I, I don't work in that industry really anymore. Uh, and I'm, I kind of am still in it a bit because my main client base is that of naturopaths, coaches, and I do teach them doctors, but I still kind of like, I'm half and half in that industry because I want to kind of sell people what they want but truly give them what they need because when we look into kind of body compositional change or performance or functionality health is the physiological prerequisite for any change within the body and it just so happens that health isn't sexy but yet most people want to get abs or develop an ass or something like this but in order to effectively efficiently and sustainably enable them to achieve such a goal they have to address these health handbrakes which can be anything from issues with the thyroid their gut health you name it Hmm. So that was kind of leading to my question was, and that industry, I mean, I, I'm more leaning towards, I guess, the industry you came from, the personal training industry, the fitness industry, which I haven't really delved in, but I see, yeah, I'm just curious. I know, of course, for all these people who love to work out and bodybuild and perhaps even even excess exercise and doing a lot of sports and running and things like i see it look i understand that because you endorphins it really makes you happy and you love it but i see it as a very hard for me to see all this training and exercise in high amounts I, I see it as very likely going to negatively impact the physiology the body is going to be damaged mm. it's hard to sustain so yeah how do you kind of because i'm sure you still work with a lot of people i mean if you guys see a photo of jake it, you know you, you'd probably think he's a bodybuilder like like that you know he's like got the muscles and the abs and the tattoos and stuff so that kind of that kind of uh not only industry but that community 
You know, I just see like I, I'm, sh- I, I don't, I'm sure there would be a lot of degenerative diseases and issues that they're facing because of the way they're exercising and training. Oh, yeah. So this is a great kind of aspect to go down. <clears throat> so when we look at this, first of all, there's orthorexia, which we can touch on after which most people don't really realize that they suffer from. But when we look at the training, yeah, it's, it's so problematic for the body. You know, people tend to shy away from doing any cardiovascular work when they're doing a, a considerable amount of resistance training. But yeah, when we look at resistance training, that is all about contractions, squeezing the muscle, contracting it under load. And by doing so, the, the goal is that there's different types of hypertrophy. We don't have to get into the sacroplasmic is myofibril, but nonetheless, it's either about creating damage to the tissue or creating kind of this sacroplasmic fluid from kind of swelling and almost pump-based workouts if we're going to reduce it down into understandable form. So when we look at those two factors alone, we can see, well, if someone's focusing a lot on contractions, then it's creating a lot of stagnation. And that also creates a lot of stagnation for the lymphatic system. So I always like people which do um, a lot of resistance training. I like them including some kind of impact exercise. So just going for a jog, for instance, a couple of times a week, just to move that lymphatic fluid around because it's easy to shy away from that because to start thinking from the mindset of, oh, I'm going to lose my gains. But from all those contractions, it stops that lymph from being as efficient. And that lymph isn't just to move toxins around, but it can transport some hormones. It can transport some fat-soluble nutrients. So it's so essential in terms of their functionality and well-being. And then in addition to that, when we look at the damage of the tissue, well, this is why I, I always tell people not to go and train within 40 hours of getting their blood work done because you create these um, inflammatory cytokines, you create these this waste products and it'll increase things like AST, ALT possibly on the blood work and other markers and other inflammatory markers there too. So inevitably, you're adding more things for the body to deal with. So that's a huge aspect. But then there's the cortisol and the stress response from people training and it stimulates that stress response and too many people work out but not enough work in and you need to get that balance between working out and working in so working in is the yin working out as the yang in terms of like chinese medicine and we need to make sure people focus on their recoverability because you can only train as hard as you can recover so people think oh i'm going to train six times a week for one and a half hours each day ah, okay that's cool but you probably don't need to do that you're probably pushing the gun far too high and you can only train as hard as you can recover so maybe in some cases it's just the stimulus what they need and the progressive overload with that but really optimizing on their recovery and if people focused on recovering as hard as they train the results would be far better so when we look at working in this encompasses things like diaphragmatic breathing wim half breathing alternate nostril technique you've got aromatherapy you've got sleep optimization walking in nature you've got being around loved ones, gratitude logs, all these sort of things, which people usually think is the hippie kind of aspect to life. But it is proven time and time again to have these profound effects on our physiology. I mean, when we look into the gratitude logs, this is a huge one what I, I usually communicate to my clients and my students. Because again, it's, it's something which is usually e- easier said than done. When, when I'm talking about gratitude logs, it's simply writing down one thing that made you smile, one thing that made you laugh, or one thing that you're thankful of. It could be in the evening, it could be in the morning. But from a kind of 
bodybuilding or individuals which want to change their physique perspective, it's been found that gratitude logs have led to a 100% increase of DHEA and a 23% reduction in total free cortisol. And in terms of a body compositional perspective here, well, DHEA, that's a precursor to our androgens like testosterone, so that's going to help with training performance and recovery. And then total free cortisol, if that's dropped by 23%, well, cortisol is the stress hormone that's going to shift you to parasympathetic, sorry, that's going to shift you to the sympathetic kind of state, which is flight and fight mode. So you're not able to train, not able to recover, not able to sleep as well. And then when we look, there's correlations with cortisol being high and the accumulation of fat around the umbilical area. So doing something as simple as a gratitude log where you're writing down these things, changing the emotional frequency can have not only a huge impact on your well-being, your happiness and those around you, but also to the body composition too. So when people understand these certain things and how it can give them what they want, it makes it more adherable. And that's that's the way that I'm trying to really trying to communicate it in this world what we're living today <clears throat> because most people <clears throat> will know about these things but they don't have that emotional driver or value behind it to adhere to such factors but if people can then understand well hey look this is my goal and this is what i want to achieve and by doing this it'll actually help me get there then it enables them to incorporate these lifestyle behavioral techniques which are often overlooked or swept under the carpet but can be hugely beneficial for them across all aspects of life mm, yeah well and yeah just even if they are getting the you know doing the in work not only working out but working in and regularly meditating and just regularly i don't know going through these high impact exercises i can even just running like running on hard services i don't know how sustainable that is for your joints yeah. i mean if you can look at you can look at sportsmen, right? I don't. I haven't looked deep into it, but like people who've run triathlons, marathons, like you can see it with rugby players for sure. Like they don't have age well at mm. all. All right, and you mentioned the orthorexia. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So orthorexia is a type of eating disorder. So the you got your typical ones like anorexia, binge eating disorder, and bulimia. You also have orthorexia as well. So this really, again, it's, it's a loose term, but it encapsulates things such as uh, wanting to relax self-imposed food rules or when eating any food regarded to be unhealthy, the feeling of anxiousness, guilt, impurity, feeling unclean or defiled can be brought on or possibly even feeling judgmental of others who eat such foods. They could spend an excessive amount of time thinking about choosing and preparing healthy food that interferes with other life dimensions such as love, creativity, family, friendship, work and school. Um, eating such food could give them a personal sense of peace, happiness, joy, safety and self-esteem. It could also um, create further health issues by eliminating more and more foods and expanding life of rules around foods in an attempt to maintain or enhance health benefits. And usually it does come across with other symptoms of malnutrition, such as hair loss, loss of menstruation or skin problems. And when we just look at loss of menstruation, that's a huge one, especially in the competitive world with female bodybuilders, because I get a lot of post females which have done um, competitions of photo shoes and they come to me with having developed PCOS, amenorrhea, infertility and you look at this and when people are 
in this health and fitness industry, they think it's acceptable to lose their menstrual cycle so they can do a competition. I mean, I, I know people which have had their, their period two days before they step on stage and win global records in, in the bodybuilding industry. So it's not a, a, an essential factor. In fact, it's a, a barometer that your, your body is under stress, but yet they just accept it and they just put it off, put it off, put it off. And then they start getting all these other health issues because obviously if you have a loss of your menstrual cycle, that means you know ovulating, you're not releasing the egg, and then therefore the follicles not reattaching and converting to the corpus luteum. That's not then producing progesterone. If you're not producing progesterone, you're not producing this a vital hormone which is essential for your thyroid, essential for GABA, essential for sleep, and everything else. And then you have all these hormonal issues. Or you could look at the the undereating aspect and how people are chronically undereating and it's impairing their thyroid, and that itself is damaging their th- fertility, but it could be leading to hair loss and other factors too. So this orthorexia is a category which a lot of people in the health and fitness industry will be experiencing unknowingly that it is a eating disorder Hmm. yeah well and i just want to add to that like as jake said if you don't have your period it's not only or if you're not ovulating it's not only to not have a that you can't have a baby there's all these other crucial functions of the body like you said immunity and bone health and thyroid health all these things yep so, and then let's 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 talk about eating disorders, uh, other types, because it's it's huge and it's probably one of the. It's definitely, a, I guess, one of the more deeper issues that I see in my clinic, and perhaps one of the more challenging. Takes more time to treat. Um, again, different for everyone, but for me, my p- kind of primary focus is deal with the nervous system and and the anxiety that's typically associated with it so what's what's your take on eating disorders where why is it coming and and how to implement treat it well yeah well we can go through some kind of uh facts and stats on this if you want i mean sure when, when we look at eating disorders it's a spectrum okay and usually people would sit into the category of disordered eating and they may dip into eating disorders And really, we want to be eating intuitively. But the category of disordered eating involves things like restricting intake to control weight or shape, being unresponsive to hunger or fullness cues, uh, eating to regulate emotions or environments, compulsive eating, overeating, negative body images, uh, limited or inflexible food intake, having an all or nothing approach to healthful eating, firm dietary rules, uh, active to burn calories and dieting culture. That is the category of disordered eating. So you can see a lot of people would fall into this category. And then we have the eating disorders like anorexia, bulimia, binge eating disorder, and orthorexia. And then we have the intuitive eating on the other side, which is eats when hungry, views eating as pleasurable, eats intentionally and with purpose, stops eating when satisfied, has positive body image, includes a variety of healthful foods, allows for indulgences, does not regulate emotions through food and active for the purpose of health. So that's where we want to be, this intuitive category. And it's, it's quite hard to get there. So when we look at factors which are leading to these shifts in how we view our body and the, the dietary rules that we have, well, body image is central to eating disorders, as has 70% of men and women are dissatisfied with their body. And extreme dieting has increased nearly threefold over the past three years. When we look into body dissatisfaction in females, we can look into 
adults and we can see that 23% of adults will frequently check their body. And this study was done with 3,714 participants. We can look into body avoidance and 11% of that study pool will go through body avoidance strategies where they won't look in the mirror or they won't look at the reflection. And then we could look into the desire to lose weight and 71% of female adults in this study, which was of 1,000 Swiss individuals, 71% of these female adults wanted to lose weight, despite 73% of them being of normal weight. We can even look into children and adolescents here. So when we look at adolescents and for females again, 46% had a fear of becoming obese. And you can see all these stats are huge. And we can look into males and we can see that out of males, which is usually, you know, we don't associate this certain thing to, to males here. But again, when we look at adolescents, 29.85% were concerned with weight and shape. 35.9% adolescents, again, desire, had the desire for toned muscles. And we had 17% which were dissatisfied with their body. And then when we go to adults here, 43.7% were concerned with weight and shape. 35% had the desire to tone muscles. And 85% were dissatisfied with the body. So these stats are huge. We can see it across the board, people being dissatisfied with the body, wanting to change the body, being concerned with the shape, even though they're actually being in, in a, of a normal weight, avoiding looking at the body. And, and it goes on and on and on. So really, we have to understand why people have this huge level of uh, distorted values and distorted perception. And there's, there's many aspects to this. I mean, social media is one. So social media has been proven throughout literature to cause body dissatisfaction. It can promote unrealistic ideals and body perception and create standards which are largely unattainable or require extreme lengths to reach measure, such measures. It can be psychologically addictive in itself by feeding the dopaminergic pathways. So therefore, people become more and more addicted to it. And whatever you interact with, you attract more of and also you know, you'll be fixated in this artificial world of social media because you can't really give it up. So therefore, they become more and more your your level of acquired or perceived norm. We can see the media is a huge one. So in 2004, more than 66% of the top 25 children videos linked thinness and physical attractiveness with positive personality traits, while 75% of videos linked obesity with unfavorable traits. We can see that females are four times more likely to be depicted as underweight when compared to males. We can also look into models used uh, used to weigh 8% less than the average woman. Now they actually weigh 23% less. We can look at TV being introduced in Fiji. And after the TV was introduced, 11% of adolescents reported vomiting for weight control and eating disorders increased from 13% to 29%. And then we have characters. So in girls aged five to eight years of age, viewing a Barbie doll has been shown to reduce body esteem and increase the desire for thinness. In 2010, 87% of females, uh, female characters portrayed as underweight in over 180 popular children cartoon programs. And it goes on and on and on. All you have to do is look at the old Batman movies and look at Batman then. And he just simply had what we would say a normal physique is. 
and then look at the Batman movies now and he's jacked up with traps bulging out of his shoulders, big pecs, big deltoids. You can even look at the action figures with um, Luke Skywalker, for instance. Luke Skywalker was a small action figure and now is this this kind of mesomorphic kind of big dells, broad upper body, tiny waist kind of figure. And it, these these things are just creating this disillusional kind of standards for uh, for children at such an early age from the media, from social media, from characters. We can even look at magazines. So nearly 50% of young girls between 13 and 17 years of age desired to be as skinny as the models they viewed in fashion magazines. 69% of 548 adolescent girls reported that magazines influenced their conception of the ideal body weight, with 47% reporting they wanted to lose weight after seeing the images. Girls are six times more likely to engage in extreme unhealthy weight loss behaviors who frequently read glamour magazines. So, you know, it goes on and on and on and on. There's so many different reasons as to why we can have these this distorted perception of self. And it really ties down into the, this new way of living with the media, social media, uh, with the characters, magazines, you name it. Yeah. And the society is one, of course, as you mentioned, the society, the social conditioning, the, the, uh, you know, that peer pressure, that social pressure. But even amongst all of that bullshit, you should know yourself, you identify with your universality, your true nature, and then you can let all that craziness be there and and not influence yourself. So that's why it's so important to, obviously, we can work with changing the society, which is going to influence, but we should really develop, you know, each individual to, you know, really tap into their, their true nature, their human nature, their absolute nature, their universality, and so that these things don't affect you know, these, these, these social conditions and these pressures. Exactly. And so how else would you, so then, yeah, so then when we can kind of tr- work towards helping these people and what people can do for themselves, which they are experiencing, you know, as I've said, like you really need to work on the nervous system in order to, you know, give yourself a free zone from all those anxious thoughts and whatever obsessive compulsive thoughts and what you're feeling and, the importance of, of course, meditation regularly and, and an effective technique where you can kind of go beyond the relative of all this and just give your body and your physiology and your mind a free zone and like let's stop and, and then doing that regularly twice a day, you'll kind of make that more the norm rather than, oh, should I eat this if this nut? I can't. What about this nut? It's going to cause this. And, oh, I didn't have a bowel motion today. Shit, what's going to happen? Oh, fuck, I'm going to freak out. So, yeah, really you know, re-enlivening your nature, which is there, your nature of a calm and stable, you know, balanced nervous system is there. We just have to remind your body what it's like. Meditation is one way. Giving yourself oil massages in Ayurveda, we, we, Ayurvedic oil massage, Abhyanga, doing that regularly um, helps pacify the nervous system. What else, Jake, have you got to contribute to yeah. Yeah, help people heal from this? I mean, there's, there's so many different things we can touch on. <clears throat> so, you know, there's things like creating a circle of support, having transparency, developing self-awareness, uh, self-monitoring. We could look at contingency plans, finding hobbies, preventing boredom, different scalabilities of, you know, if someone's of that orthorectic nature, probably not weighing the food and using hand measurements instead. 
and using mm. plate portions instead. Or we could look at addressing stresses, addressing trauma, past trauma, helping people unroot paradigms, perceptions, helping um, support dopamine because the dopamine resistance is a big one for binge eating disorder. A huge one for anorexia is actually zinc deficiency. So when we look into the category of like what causes zinc deficiency, puberty, stress, vegetarianism, exercise, excessive sweating, anorexia, estrogen, birth control pills, lack of nutrients, soil erosion, and environmental toxins. When we look into the, the kind of category here, this falls into the main demographic which would suffer from anorexia. So pubescent girls. So puberty, stress, um, estrogen, birth control pills, and then everyone's going to be suffering from a lack of nutrients, soil erosion, and environmental toxins. So you can understand, well, there's a huge component there. And when we look at zinc deficiency, well, when, you, when you're zinc deficient, it leads to abnormal taste. It leads to decreased appetite because it's used in many, many different enzymes. For instance, it's used in trypsin, camotrypsin, elastase, lipase, amylase, maltase, sucrase, lactase, pepsin, and other digestive enzymes. So therefore, we now have decreased taste, decreased appetite, which leads to food avoidance, and that can further perpetuate reduced zinc intake. And in fact, studies have even shown that there's a bidirectional relationship between zinc deficiency and anorexia, suggesting that more than half of anorexic patients are zinc deficient. And it goes on and on and on. And we can even look at how the zinc itself is not only essential for the digestion, because let's, let's look at this from a kind of rehabilitation perspective. If someone's suffering from anorexia and then they know then they may be going through this kind of rehabilitation phase, but yet when they try to eat more food, they don't have the digestive capacity to actually digest that food. So now they're eating this food and it's not being digested well and it's sitting in their stomach and it's making them feel bloated. It may even create a bloating effect there because of the fermentation which may take place. That's only going to create and reinforce a, a negative relationship with food. So if people are trying to go through this rehabilitation phase and they're incorporating food but don't have that digestive capacity to actually digest that food itself, no wonder why there is um, such a failure rate with many rehabilitation programs because when they introduce the food, they're just going to feel bloated, feel bad, feel heavy, and it's going to reinforce the problem. And exacerbate the problem mm. because they're like, oh, now that they're scared to eat anything. Yes, Exactly, exactly. You know, so this is why uh, zinc's essential in terms of digestion, but it's also essential for the, the kind of neurochemistry too, because the activation of vitamin B6 through to pyridoxal 5-phosphate, the most bioactive form, it's required to have zinc as an essential cofactor to allow that conversion of vitamin B6 through to P5P. And then we look at what does P5P do? P5P helps with 5-hydroxytryptophan convert through to serotonin. So now we know that, okay, there's, an, there's this relationship with serotonin there. We could also look how zinc is involved in the synthesis, regulation, and receptor function of serotonin, melatonin, dopamine, GABA, and glutamate. So again, that neurochemistry is absolutely essential on zinc, but yeah, it's so hard to come by. And then we know that it plays roles in BDNF, brain-derived neurotropic factor. It can actually elicit antidepressant effects by enhancing that BDNF. And it has inhibitory actions on NMDA, which is a huge component which stimulates the limbic system, which leads to anxious, anxiety, aggression, and other factors too. So 
really assessing zinc status and incorporating zinc therapy for uh, rehabilitation processes for anyone with anorexia is one of many different things we can look into to assist with it. You know, the, 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 it's, it's, the key thing is that we are all individual and it's not a one-size-fits-all approach because yeah. someone may just have good zinc levels for some different reason. So maybe zinc therapy might not be a good option for them because it, let's say if someone, let's just, an example here would be if someone has um, elevated clostridium difficult levels in their gut and that creates two metabolites, HPHPA and fulcrezol. That blocks dopamine beta-hydroxylase. They lead to an excess level of dopamine, and that's making them feel anxious and having symptoms of ADHD. Maybe if we dose zinc too high, it could further block that enzyme, which would therefore increase dopamine even more and further lead to more feelings of ADHD and anxiety. So in that case, we'd want to be more therapeutic with the protocol rather than jumping someone in at the deep end. Yeah, and looking at the other components of the digestive system mm. and all the others and and as you alluded to earlier like to not get so rigid and specific about how many nutrients and micronutrients and macronutrients like i once saw a patient who who went to a clinic like a in in resident um clinic for eating disorders and and they counted everything yeah. And it freaked her out and she got back. And I, I, my, what I tell most people is like, here's some general guidelines, but just forget about it. Like I'm getting messages all the time, every meal, like, can I eat this? Can I eat this? Yeah, eat whatever. Like yeah. we need to get their mind away from that. And- exactly. But usually when we look when we look into this, when we look into eating disorders, it usually comes from a lack of control earlier in their life. So usually it's from – possibly um, some form of abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, and they've lost an element of control. And it's this kind of ruminating pattern in the subconscious where they feel like they, they have lost control in their life and they want to regain it. So by c- creating control over something, what they can use and monitor every single day being food enables them to um, fill that void, so to speak. So a huge aspect when you do uh, when when working with eating disorders is understanding past traumas and really helping them with the psychological aspect of addressing that trauma and then usually you see everything else unfold after that Mm -hmm. all right talking about body image let's move to something else which um which is which is interesting and and that's breast implants one thing can be and i've seen you know as crazy as it sounds, but yeah, young women getting them uh, because you know they felt their their breasts were not big enough. But of course, other people can get them if you know they've had a mastectomy. Um, but there's yeah, it's a lot of lot of issues and uh, with can can be issues with this. Mostly there are. Um, really, the only reason someone would get it is is for the aesthetic look. But um, yeah, it's really interesting. My I know some people who. One of them being my mother, who she had a double mastectomy for breast cancer, and she's in a she's in a Facebook group for for breast cancer survivor, actually for breast implant, I believe, maybe yeah. breast cancer, and it's a very strict Facebook group. Like you have to show photos of, I believe, of your breasts and like certificates and stuff to to really show you've joined because because people are posting photos of their breasts, yeah, and 
there's recent there was recently a huge recall in in Australia um, of one. It was made you know really hot press, especially in that community. And and in that community, the question then was, well, do you get it? Do you get yours taken out or do you get yours leave, leave left in? There was half of the women were saying taking out was the best thing ever. They yeah. were liberated for these long-standing fatigue and liberated from all these chronic conditions almost, you know, in a few days, just significant healing from that. And But then there was the other half of the women saying, fuck, this was the worst thing I did. I'm feeling shit, like really big implications of, of I can't remember what was happening, but they're really acute conditions and, and it didn't seem like they're getting better and obviously, you know, the, the surgery was affected them negatively and, and they didn't, they reacted to it. And so, yeah, let's, let's go into breast, breast implants. Yeah. So there's this huge amount of evidence here. If, for instance, if someone goes onto my Instagram, I've got a highlight reel. I think it's probably only, I've probably only shared 50 stories from individuals which people have contacted me and um, shared their experience but these range from people having Hashimoto's and having explantation and then then the thyroid antibodies fall back down to the normal level and the Hashimoto's kind of disappears Uh, people which have IBS and the IBS was terrible and like three days after taking out the the breast implants the gut function restores to normality and I've even had people contact me where the, their daughter had breast implants. They lose their eyesight literally within the week and they were blind and then they had them removed and then she regained vision. Oh so it's, it's, it is huge. But when we look into the studies, there's a, there's a plethora of studies here, you know, which, which we can go into. And it's coming more and more to light. In um, 2018, there's a study done on 99 1,993 individuals with silicone implants. And it found that there was six times greater risk of arthritis than the general population, 4.5 times increased risk of having stillbirth, but not a miscarriage, and four times greater risk of developing melanoma. So you can see already that is a huge risk. We can see that silicone implants can be um, creating issues with the body elsewhere because the silicon can leach and it can be detected in tissues and even the central nervous system leading to systemic symptoms such as uh, fatigue, issues with the nerves, cognitive impairment, dry eyes, dry mouth, morning stiffness. A huge impact with this as well. There seems to be uh, correlations with thyroid. I've not seen any direct studies, but just from the case hands, the case studies what I've been dealing with, the thyroid usually down-regulates and when we look at the above symptoms, what I just mentioned in terms of fatigue, myalgia, cognitive impairments, dry eyes, dry mouth, morning stiffness, more than 65% of women with silicon implants had these symptoms. Now, after removal, 69% of women experienced a reduction of these symptoms. And this was a study done in 2013. And then we can go on and look in how well, silicon implants, they can create these kind of immunological dysfunctions. Whereas. It's because it's well, basically like a foreign invader in exactly, your body. Exactly. Yep. And then we have saline, and that's associated more to mold. So mm. saline, there's, there's been uh, stories where people have um, the breast implants removed, and it is literally just black because of the mold from the saline there and the improper sterilization before implantation. So generally you'll see silicon implants being more associated with immune dysregulation and saline being more associated with mold toxicology. So there's things we can do. Um, 
some people say you can use infrared saunas if you have breast implants. I'd never recommend that. I just don't feel comfortable comfortable with that. I personally think it may increase leaching. But you can have um, autoantibodies measured and making sure that these autoantibodies aren't increasing. If you do have breast implants, they could range from RF, APF, AKA, F AFA, ANA, which is a big one, uh, ENA, and so on and so forth. Another aspect as well to look into, if you are considering breast implants, would be to look into the the DNA SNPs. And there's one called HLA-DR53. And this is a genetic marker uh, which could increase the likelihood of individuals developing disease to silicon implants there. So there's some kind of aspects. But I'd, I'd personally say getting breast implants is... It can be it can be useful for people like let's say if they had like uh, breast cancer and they are feeling that self conscious with themselves that but that they feel depressed. Then in that case where they have this level of depression and it's really affecting their quality of life. Yeah, I understand someone getting breast implants there, but I think a lot of the time people are jumping straight to to change how they look on this cosmetic level out of this kind of um, away from motivation, away from how they feel and stopping them feeling bad about themselves. But yet I think the key thing here is to really, again, work inside, develop that nurturing self-love, care, respect, gratitude, and really trying to, to love yourself for who you are, which is quite hard, as we just talked about in terms of the, the, the world of eating disorders. There's many things which create this, this distorted perception of ideologies ranging from social media, magazines, films, movies, you name it. So I think that the key thing is for anyone wanting or contemplating breast implants, please just hold off and try really focusing on loving yourself and going deeper understanding why you may feel may feel insecure about yourself is it because your role model as a kid had greater size breasts than you or was it because you used to get bullied at school you know we have to understand why you may be feeling about yourself in such a way and go to the root cause and try to address it because most of the time i see clients which have had not just one kind of um, cosmetic surgery on the breast, but they may have had multiple because they have a breast enlargement and then four years later down the line, they're not happy and they want to make it again and again. And you, you look at this and it's like, well, not only is that creating all these implications, as I just mentioned with stillbirth or, or melanoma or arthritis or, or IBS or thyroid issues, fertility and cancers, but you, you're damaging your mentality that level of self-worth because you're disempowering that self-love and saying, I will be happier in my body if I allow it to be changed in a way where I wasn't born into. And it, as soon as someone takes that initial step, it's, it kind of disempowers their, their, their self-worth. And it's going to be a lot harder to regain that after because it will always be a conditional factor. It'll always be, a, if I do this, then I can feel this rather than I am this. So I'm going to overcome that first. So we can even look into the impacts there and the, as well as the lymphatic system and the scar tissue and that can create issues with the meridian line systems and, the, and other factors. Yeah, so I mean, that's the key side of the lymph. And mm-hmm. in Ayurveda, we say the lymph is like the most important tissue. It's, it's the drains of the body, it's the immune system. Yeah. It's what takes the toxins. Yeah. 
Um, and yeah, so definitely those who, who are getting those reoccurring surgeries, which sound crazy, definitely there's that underlying issue of, all right, what, what is this self-worth, self-kind of love, yeah. uh, emotional imbalance. And, and for those who do want to get your breast implants out, then I, all I can say is get a really good surgeon. Right. Yeah, I'd probably implement some binders as well. So, obviously, um, there'll be the risk of uh, chemicals being leaked into the body. So, post surgery, looking into the use of Corella Pronidosa just to help bind onto uh, any of the chemicals there and just to assist with the removal of the body. I'd also make sure you're supporting your uh, glutathione pathways possibly stimulation of nrf2 pathway but maybe taking some liposomal glutathione maybe if you have the availability and access probably getting some iv treatment done post explantation so yeah. iv glutathione yeah glutathione. iv glutathione yeah. uh obviously speak with um the functional medicine doctor there but yeah. they may even want to go down the line of implementing a low dose of edta um vitamin c therapy just to chelate any of the leached uh, material from the body out yeah good and before as also before the therapy before the surgery to really strengthen the immune system and make you feel good yeah. good energy yeah cool um while we're on this i'd love to hear your say on this while we're on the topic of um yeah i guess uh physical appearances tattoos yeah because you have a man with how many oh i got? I, I got three quarter sleeves so i i didn't know this until obviously after, um, <laughs> like I, I I did I did the research and you know I, I was um, it's okay it's burning I, karma yeah like you know it's it's one of those things where you you, you check out after and you're like oh shit um, but there there are some issues obviously with tattoos now the the heavy metals is a huge aspect of it interestingly we can see tattoos originate as far back as. Uh, OZ, the Iceman, which is, I think it's 5,300 year old mummified kind of hunter gatherer and, um, found in some Alps. And the, on that individual, there was, uh, 61 tattoos on them. So it's interesting that it does kind of have some strong roots going back. We can look into possibly like the Mayans there or Aztecs and the, the, the use of tattoos was, was used far, far back. You know, we can even see records stating the use of tattoos on slaves, for instance, in Roman emperor Constantine era. So 313 AD. Um, so, you know, it does have a lot of history, which is interesting because why do we feel the urge to, to do this sort of thing? I don't know. I don't know. It is it is weird. It is really, really weird. Now happy into that primal roots, maybe. Yeah, yeah even well, the Vedic culture as well, they do it. It's like the early form of acupuncture and yeah. they have on certain points. So it's weird. And then why should that be any different from someone wanting to get breast implants? So it's changing how they want to view or be with their body to improve it. Now that's just the same scale on that the someone wanting to get breast implants to improve their body. So, I, you know, I fall into that category of previously wanting to change how I looked and my appearance to improve my self-worth. But when we look into tattoos, they're becoming more and more popular. 
Uh, 36% of Americans between 18 and 29 have at least one tattoo. One out of five individuals in the UK have a tattoo, rising to one in three for young adults. Um, out of 3,411 tattooed participants, 41% were disinterested in the chemical compounds injected in their skin. So they were not bothered about really knowing what is injected into their skin there. Um, we can see that tattoos can have traces of iron, can have chromium, nickel, lead, some have aluminium, arsenic, uh, mercury, uranium, thallium. So there's a, there's a huge element of heavy metals, what we can acquire from tattoos. And with individuals with tattoos, I've had um, friends which have um, performed autopsies and they, they say that the, the lymph around the tattoos will be black from the chemicals leaching in. Mm. So that's one aspect. So obviously there's going to be, again, issues with the lymphatic system. In terms of the tattoo, you're, you're absorbing these metals into the body and that will be creating all these other issues there. Usually metals are associated with uh, neurology, brain function, nerves, this sort of thing. So that's a huge element. And then we have the scar tissue, which can decrease fascia, again, decrease lymph and other aspects. So if anyone does have tattoos, if the colored tattoos, they are more prone to leaking and fading and therefore leaking the, the color and the, the ink and the metals into the, the body. So you want to avoid excessive sunlight to those because the, the, the more risk potentially there, uh, but it's also even years after getting it. Yeah. Uh, yeah it's worse. It's worse. Yeah. Because mm. it's fading more. Um, but again, it's also dependent on the quality of the ink was being used. And if anyone does have tattoos, again, going back to that Corella Pronidosa, they're going to have to use Corella Pronidosa basically long-term for the rest of their life because their body will be gradually leaching these metals into their system. So you want to therapeutically chelate them. So a nice calm one, which isn't really going to create any uh, competition for nutrient absorption or any other issues would be Corella Pronidosa. Okay, cool. And for them saying well well our ancestors used to use it primarily i want to tap into my primal self you know mm. so is is the metal free tattoos easily available i i i am completely unaware of any tattoos which are metal free um i do know there is ones of better quality but uh, I'm, I'm uncertain if there are metal free versions. Okay, interesting. And and like even those pokes poke sticks, which people typically get done in Asia. Yeah, I'm. That also have the metals. Yeah, because it's the ink there, what they're using. Yeah. Um, yeah. But there's also issues with like the fascia as well. You know, you create a lot mm. of scar tissue. Scar tissue is is going to create this kind of uh, trauma on the body. So it can decrease the fascial efficiency. It can decrease the lymphatic movement. For instance, I tend to find people have restricted lymph flow around areas where they've had tattoos, and that's going to be problematic for potentially cancers and stuff. Mm, yeah. And have you also heard about and the fact that you've got metal in you can also be a problem with 5G because 5G does jump conducts, mm. jump conducts, so it can jump yes. onto the metal. So exactly. something to... Oh, yeah. Yep, 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 yep. So that's a huge, huge caution there, you know, because when we look into EMFs, like not, not just from the 5G, but from the Wi-Fi, from the phones, there's a whole host of issues which come along from that because 
what happens there with the electromagnetic frequencies, they will change the voltage-gated calcium center on the cell, leads to increase calcium leading inside the cell that leads to pathophysiological changes such as increase in NF-kappa-beta, increase in nitric oxide and increase in peroxynitrate. And that can then continue on to increase in risk for certain cancers, depleting melatonin. It can lead to oxidative stress, depression, um, issues with sleep, you name it. If you're listening to this podcast and you've, you've listened to this podcast chat, uh, before and you're still putting a phone next to your head or a laptop and or a laptop on your lap and a phone in your pocket while it's not on airplane mode y'all really got to do some more research because without a doubt non-native electromagnetic fields are extremely biologically active and it's underappreciated because people do not see it and unless and they don't feel it unless you're hypersensitive so yeah absolutely one of the most pernicious toxins today I just got sent some EMF protective clothing, actually, to try out. Yeah, it's good. I want to let me know how. I mean, unless you're measuring it, do you measure? I got an EMF uh, reader and I tried it yesterday, and it, and it does actually block it. So how do you do that? Do you like put it under your clothing, the reader? No, no so so no. This I basically got the the, the, the sent me some boxes and a top, mm. and I got the the reader. And I put it next to a fan, which was plugged in, switched on the wall, and it was going crazy. And then I just wrapped my the boxes around mm. the reader, and it just went down to zero. Wow! It has silver thread in, so it's like thirty five percent of the thread silver. Definitely very essential for pregnant women, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, let's definitely protect our, especially with the boxes, the underpants, because that's one of the tissues that get Yeah, but and that's one of the, that and the heart and the brain is getting higher concentration of the voltage-gated calcium channels, and those will be more imp- impacted. What, do you know the brand of that? Uh, I think it's Lambs. I'll find out and... Uh, okay, we'll, we'll put in the show notes because I yeah. want to get some. Yeah. Cool. Um, so, let's move on to some other topics. Another kind of hot thing is back on like on the, I guess, some really uh, uncomfortable conditions that affecting a woman can be endometriosis. And before we talk about that, yes, we're two young blokes talking about women's health, but hey, wouldn't you rather us be talking about women's health and interested in it and studying it than not? <laughs> yeah, well, this, this is it as well. We live in a patriarchal society. So this is where uh, women's health tends to get neglected. And we look at things like the oral concept pill or chemical contraceptives, and we understand that the massive health implications which come along to this, but yet there are no widely available male contraceptives. You know, there's the condom, but there's, there's nothing other than that, you see. So it is that's quite the impressive. The drugs, it's their issue, right? Ex- exactly. This is it. And that's the negligence because men are fertile 24-7, you know, all, all of the month. Well, Supposed mm-hmm. to be. There's been a 53% reduction in sperm since 1970. But when we look at females, they're only fertile for, what, five days? Five days of the month? So, in essence, it should be the men which kind of halt their fertility there. Or you just use the symptothermal method, which is an effective way to to um, prevent conception. That, that's fertility tracking, right? Yeah. So, you, you've got three three parameters there with your assess. Your morning basal temperature, you'd also assess your um, uh, cervix changes and your vaginal mucosa. You track those three things. And generally speaking, if there's a 0.3 degree centigrade increase of temperature for, the, for 
a couple of days is one sign that you could be ovulating because you can have a period and you're not necessarily ovulating they're two different things yeah 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 so So endometriosis yeah yeah, very debilitating condition massively massively and it's on the rise it's a multifaceted disease which needs a multifaceted approach it affects anywhere from three to ten percent of women in reproductive ages and it can affect nine to fifty percent of infertile women over 730,000 women in australia have endometriosis the diagnosis is missed in one in five doctors it takes an average of seven to twelve years to get diagnosed 50 percent of patients have fertility issues and there's genetic elements showing the seven to eight times more likely uh, to have endometriosis if a relative has the disease there's also a huge aspect of sexual and physical abuse here so a study uh when was this study done 2018 a study of more than 60,000 women has found that sexual and physical abuse in childhood and adolescence is associated with a greater risk of endometriosis diagnosed during adulthood so you can see that uh, there's a huge element here and when we're looking at this further the study the largest of its kind found that women reporting severe chronic abuse of multiple times had a 79 percent higher risk of endometriosis so again early life abuse huge risk factor there and it's, it's terrible because unfortunately we can see that early life abuse is, is increasing and that's fascinating um, because mm. It can also be, I kind of also see endometriosis a lot associated with the immune system mm-hmm. and, and perhaps, yeah, potentially like that, that they've abused that, that aspect of the body and where their immune system has been. Also, like related with the microbiome in the vagina and yeah, yeah they've kind of jeopardized that with the abuse. Yeah, so when you look at it, it's, it's almost like um, this emotional shutdown. So, with, from the sexual abuse there, it's the the body is is kind of doing this in a protective mechanism to to protect those those sexual organs which could have been obviously abused. So it's it's you can see how it happens with this 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 disruption to the to the um, the organs there. And it's just heartbreaking that someone would actually go through some some trauma and then be left with an issue possibly caused from that trauma later in life. It's just it really is heartbreaking. Fortunately, there's a lot you can do, though, for endometriosis. That's the fortunate thing. In fact, uh, there's a really good case study. I was teaching my women's wellness seminar, and there was one individual, and uh, she complained of being cold. So instantly, red flag. I thought, well, if this individual's cold, I wonder what their thyroid levels were like. So I spoke to her on the break, and I said, hey, have you ever had your thyroid levels checked? And she said, she got them checked for the doctor, and the doctor said it was fine, but mom's got thyroid issues. I was like, right, okay. And she, and then it ends up she also has endometriosis. Now, the interesting thing, I asked her if her mum was a hairdresser or worked with fragrances because phthalates is a huge aspect for endometriosis. And her mum was a hairdresser all her life. And obviously through birth, she was a hairdresser. She was exposed to these kind of prenatal phthalates and that's a huge risk factor there for the endometriosis. So after the, the seminar, I spoke with her and we looked at the results of thyroid and it just ends up that TSH was around 3.56, I think it was, which is far out the functional medicine range. And um, she was actually going in to have um, IVF treatment about four days later. But after the seminar, she decided to stop it, uh, stop that IVF treatment and do a consultation with myself. And within the, the consultation, she acquired all the information, what she required to get pregnant and 
now she's successfully pregnant and on the way to giving birth. So, you know, when we look at endometriosis, yes, people can have endometriosis and it can inhibit their fertility, but there are things we can do to help combat that. There's many different things. So, yep, you mentioned gut health. That is a huge component, especially LPS. So when we look into lipopolysaccharides or endotoxins, you can see how they can uh, actually have huge correlations with endo so you want to check someone's gut health and usually people with endometriosis it gets misdiagnosed as having gut health issues because they may have bloating or pain and that could be the endometrial like lesions which would be stimulating and bleeding in times of ovulation or around the cycle and it can be anywhere within the body it doesn't just have to be the gut it could be the lower back people can have rectal bleeding for instance around their period two from endometriosis or even nosebleeds or it could be anywhere so this is why it can be so easily um, misdiagnosed but when we look at kind of the mechanisms as as to how this really works well the lesions will stimulate aromatase so aromatase is an enzyme which creates estrogen so these lesions will stimulate aromatase so it can create more estrogen to further perpetuate its cycle its growth and further lesions so we really want to look at inhibiting aromatase here so then we look at what stimulators there are of aromatase there's cox2 and there's pge2 so we really want to block those kind of factors there and that comes down into things like the um the typical uh, turmeric, ginger, vitamin D is a big, big one. Uh, vitamin E is another one. And then we also have want to look into zinc because usually zinc will help to uh, reduce aromatase activity. And if someone's deficient in zinc, they, the aromatase enzyme will be uh, overstimulated. We want to address any insulin resistance and avoid things like BPA, which is an endocrine disrupting compound and it increases the estrogen binding affinity. We'd want to avoid uh, pesticides because they can upregulate aromatase over twofold. We want to avoid PCBs, avoid copper, many other aspects. Yeah, wow. And you mentioned phthalates. Is that, what can you, what are they? Phthalates are in anything fragrance that doesn't just limit it to perfumes or deodorants, but it can also be found in yoga mats, for instance, or shower curtains or any plastics, like kind of, um, kind of textured plastics or toys sometimes can have phthalates in, but it's been removed throughout Europe, I believe. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Cool. And yeah, so for that, you know, in Ayurveda, we have a lot of herbs which we give to kind of reduce that excess growth. And we kind of see it as a as a increase of the the muscle and the fat tissue, some imbalances there, and that can lead that can be definitely from the digestion a lot. And so many different causative factors, the hormonal imbalances, as Jake said, the contraceptive pill and things like that. So going back to endometriosis, mm-hmm. something which can work quite well, things like grapeseed extract, it can work to inhibit aromatase. You also have um, pinegol, which is pine bark extract or melatonin all of these have been shown to reduce kind of um, the symptoms and pain or the uh, kind of flare-ups really if you if you live in a place with good light like where you don't get a melatonin supplement just optimize your melatonin by getting daylight in the day precursors of those daylights that tryptophan and tyrosine which is made when you're exposed to sunlight and in the evening just wear the blue light blocking glasses after sunset, go to bed before 10 p.m. and, and 
see with your natural melatonin before you start making your glands lazy. See, I've, I'm on I'm on a different consensus there. That's good. And and um, this is this is interesting, okay? Uh, because I um I use melatonin and I use a considerable amount, but this is because of the implications what we we are um, brought upon in modern day society now I, first of all i have to say this okay so i the dosage what i use is let's say not recommended. Uh, yeah 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 beyond recommended it's like it's like it's like not don't try this at home you know um don't even <laughs> attempt to get advice to try this because i'm not telling you to do that i'm telling you the opposite i'm saying don't do this okay mm-hmm. now i've seen studies which have not been able to get published because of this information. I've seen case studies with people close to me and I've also had a huge experience myself with using this. And the normal dosage of melatonin is like what, two milligrams? I use 200 milligrams. And I, I don't use this consecutively. I'd use this for about two weeks on and two weeks off. And the reason why I do this is because, well, when we look into melatonin, going back to EMFs, non-native electromagnetic frequencies, one of the biggest things there which creates issues from EMFs is peroxynitrate. Melatonin acts as a scavenger, a free radical scavenger for peroxynitrate. So it stops the EMFs from being as bad. Another aspect is that melatonin can dramatically reduce the rate of proliferation in some cancer cells. Studies have found profound impacts there using melatonin on breast cancer cells, especially when the breast cancer is um, introduced with BPA or estradiol. You can see the rate of proliferation go up through the roof with estradiol and BPA, but when melatonin is met with it, you can see the rate of proliferations reduced. You can also look into the neuronal damage from aluminium, where mice have been injected with aluminium or mercury, and you can look into the brain and see the neuronal damage from the heavy metals is blunted from melatonin. You could also look into the glutathione production pathways and how it is optimized with melatonin. You could also look into the mitochondrial uh, antioxidant effects where it supports respiration and it actually acts as a mitochondrial supporting agent because it stops all of this oxidative stress against the mitochondria. And you can even go as far as looking into the lower esophageal sphincter, the mucosal flow in the guts and it goes on and on and on, even through to chelating fluoride from the pineal gland. So I've got a funny story because um, I, was, I was doing this experimental dose for, for about five days. And both my partner and I were walking down a street where we walked every single day, multiple times per, per day, in fact, for the past six months. And just after five days of doing this protocol, we could smell car exhaust fumes from around 500 meters away. Mm. And it smelt repulsive. We could smell the kitchen oils. It was in the morning. We could smell them introducing the new kitchen oils and turning over the oils in the kitchen at the back of a restaurant with all the doors and windows closed. And we could smell that and it smelt repulsing. We could, well, our sense of smell heightened through the roof. And I'd put this down to the detoxification. Because the olfactory system, the sense of smell, is how we could survey our environment for threats and toxins. We smell smoke, we know there's a fire, we smell our food, we know not to eat it. But yet when we become so embodied with all these heavy metals and other toxicants and other aspects, our body becomes less and less vigilant at surveying 
the environment for these threats. But because the chelation, the, the removal of this, it become so heightened and still remains to this stage right now. Um, another aspect is that my partner, she wanted to try a higher dosage. And I was telling her, no, there's the Herxheimer reaction. You're going to chelate too many heavy metals and it's going to be bad for you. Anyway, she wanted to try it. So we thought, okay, well, let's test it. I give her probably 500 milligrams. And you're taking these in capsules or no powder. I've, we've got a hundred thousand milligrams of melatonin okay. and we've got a kilo on the way. Okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like Pablo Escobar. Um, <laughs> um, but, but we, um, she, she tried this, this large amount and the next day she, she was just depersonalized. She was crying emotional and she was even saying that she doesn't feel like herself. And then it's interesting as well because um, ever since doing that, our energy has been heightened like throughout the roof. Like it has been phenomenal. And my sense of intuition as well, for instance, I can do consultations and they can just tell me one thing and then I'll be able to guess that their son, which we're not even talking about, has a speech impediment. And I can, my, my sense of intuition with all these kind of dysfunctions diseases has gone through the roof and I intuition penal mm. gland which just yeah. secretes the melatonin exactly. third the eye yeah. yeah because it yeah. removes that fluoride another aspect as well is i was doing this for too long i did it for two months and there's not that many studies on this higher dosage of melatonin but my thyroid started to hurt and i, I did some research found out melatonin and high dosages could inhibit thyroid production but i also thought well from the osmotic gradient from the removal of the fluoride from the the brain the osmotic gradient is that it comes down to the thyroid and the thyroid the mm. thyroid accumulates fluoride so i thought that was a factor there freaked me out a little bit when my thyroid was hurting for a few days so i thought you know it's probably best time to stop but um i've actually got papers and it's a shame i can't share my screen but i've got papers on covid19 and melatonin three different ones and showed that it's an effective therapy used in treating it in some papers you see and they use dosages of between one and 400 milligrams there it's all very interesting mm. very very interesting especially the super super sensory perception mm -hmm. fascinating and yeah i mean my my view is i like like to avoid supplements and, and it's good that you're going two weeks on two weeks off mm -hmm. because the thing with supplements that i see is like a melatonin for example like your body becomes like your penal gland becomes lazy to produce its own melatonin and that's why i always recommend i usually recommend like at least one day or one day a week miss it Mm. See, I looked into some studies on this and I found that there was a study, I think it was more recently, that daily use of melatonin for a year led to no suppression of secretion of the pineal gland. Because I was, I was from the same thought process. I was from the same thought process. But I think one thing what would be useful to look at is the entromacrophin cells. So the cells within the mucosa which secrete 400% more melatonin than the pineal gland. I wonder if those downregulate because of the oral consumption and it affects Where are the they? The, it's in the mucosal lining. So the, the, the name of them again? Entromacrophin cells. Okay. So they, they secrete 400% more melatonin than the pineal gland. 
because melatonin, similar to like serotonin, you know, we've got a lot of serotonin in our gut, but a lot of it stays localized within the gut and it's there for motility and other factors there too. Melatonin has a huge impact in the gastrointestinal tract. So it helps with this mucosal flow, helps regulate the immune response there, it helps with lower esophageal sphincter, regulation of gastric acids. So a lot of it is also gut related. Yeah. So I wonder if it's suppressing the secretion from the the cells within the gut mm. or the brain. Yeah. I'm not sure. But when we look into this, you know, it's like it's unfortunate because my theory as well here is the the lifestyle's what we used to live where we didn't have EMFs, where we wouldn't have blue lights, where we would be going to sleep at sundown and waking up at sunlight. And we wouldn't have stress. We'd have proper methylation. We'd have sufficient magnesium to bind with N-acetyl, uh, to, to produce S-adenos or methionine to bind with N-acetyl serotonin to make melatonin. You know, all of those factors would have been tenfold higher. But now we have introduced all these factors. Our melatonin production is under war and it's under siege. So the, the, the ability of us producing melatonin compared to, let's say, 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 years ago, I'd love to see the difference because we know that if, just looking at sperm counts, for instance, I know it's not hormone, but it's, it's a barometer of health, that's dropped 53% since 1970. We can look at testosterone dropping down by around half too and all these other factors. I would, would have really presumed melatonin would have been much higher. And from taking this exogenous dosage, it was just phenomenally high super physiological dosage it helps to mitigate against a lot of the the, the risk factors. Industrial that's it yeah. that's it yeah, but, but sure. the studies as well aren't being able to get published on this i mean it's i mean i can just literally pull up some studies now and there's one for your listeners I, i've got a seminar i'm making on melatonin um so there's one study here which is a really interesting one for your listeners if they they use PubMed is COVID-19 melatonin as a potential adjuvant treatment um, for COVID-19. Another one would be uh, melatonin inhibits COVID-19 cytokine storm by reversing aerobic glycolysis in immune cells and mechanistic analysis. Um, Another one is therapeutic algorithm for the use of melatonin in patients with COVID-19. Um, and then there's other papers here would be melatonin protects against mercury induced oxidative tissue damage in rats. And there's another one here, the protective properties of melatonin against aluminium-induced neural damage. And there's another one um, for the breast cancer. Melatonin inhibits the proliferation of breast cancer cells induced by bisphenol A via targeting estrogen receptor-related pathways. So there's some additional kind of research papers just for your listeners to check out. Uh, I personally think it's probably the best antioxidant in the body, which doesn't yeah, really I agree. spoke about. Yeah, I agree. For sure. Mm. I agree with that. Um, yeah, interesting. Definitely, you know, we're exposed to modern industrial influences, which we've never done, and it's particularly affecting the melatonin, especially due to the circadian mismatch. Mm. And, yeah, I just think, yeah, but I, I still think as well as that, we still have, you know, uh, the capacity to endogenously create that internally. And for that, obviously, we need other interventions like the, you know perhaps more the spirituality and the meditation to kind of go beyond the the relative stuff and really tap into that deeper primal potential that we had three four thousand years ago and yeah. my other issue with or caution rather with this with supplements which i'd like to hear your view is it's just the impact on the liver because a lot of these, although are natural, they're still synthetic man-made in, mm. in a lab and a lot of people's livers 
uh, impacted, especially in the US, who just seem to take a lot more medications than us in Australia. But yeah, just general people's livers impacted also due to the the oils that all the crap rancid oils yeah. that people are using. So some people have an issue with digesting the supplements also. And this is a huge thing because when we look at supplements, for instance, calcium supplementation is terrible because it just gets ingested, digested too fast. And the, the calcium consumption in diet is, is drip feeded. You know, it's slowly dripped into our digestion through into our bloodstream. Whereas when we take the supplementation, you can create this dramatic influx and it can create huge, 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 huge issues with people. I mean, the studies even showing this as well, showing that um, there's 24,000 people aged 35 to 64 uh, years old and individuals with calcium supplementation had a 140% greater risk of a heart attack. And this was 11 year period. And this was from the BMJ. Um, and they did, that same study didn't see a higher risk of heart attack from calcium from food another study um from bmj uh, twelve thousand people calcium supplements increased the risk uh, of stroke by 20 percent heart attack by 31 percent and all causes of mortality by nine percent uh, another study found that over a thousand milligrams of calcium supplementation per day increased the risk of death from cardiovascular disease 20 percent and it can just go on and on and on and on so when we look at this it leads to even um uh, the, the best dosage here for calcium intake per day was 700 to 900 milligrams for a lower fracture rate. And this would probably be from dietary measures rather than supplementation. As I just mentioned, the supplementation can create calcification. It's influxed far too high into this, the body. And then that's just calcium. We look at probiotics, right? Probiotics is like taking out, let's say, um, an example would be like, you have all these different colors, okay? You've got, you've got blue, green, red, yellow, purple, all these different colors, and we just constantly put in blue, blue, blue. Over time, you're not going to be able to see all the other colors because all you can see is blue. And that's the same with probiotics. Some people state we have up to 35,000 different species of bacteria within our gut. But when we look at probiotics, they are often limited to lactobacillus, plantinum, or KCI, or other types of strains and, and species there, but it is so small on that spectrum that we aren't really re-inoculating that, that microdiversity required within the gut. And this is why when you look into probiotics, they, they tend to be transient. There is no long-term benefit. The max benefit will be up to eight weeks after, and you have to be strain-specific because this, the difference in strain could be the same difference from a chihuahua to a rock violet because they are both this from the dog species but the strain being a rock fire or a trial is completely different same when you go to like lactobacillus plantinum hn108 or lactobacillus plantinum 1803 or something like this for instance just they're just kind of phrases what i'm putting out there but then we can even look into oils so you have your omega-3s and before you go into oils is is a really good point i want to like emphasize it and because a lot of people think taking probiotics is good for their health but as you said it's like a monoculture farming exactly and and you're ultimately creating i mean look of course it can be helpful it is helpful for many people and they feel symptomatic relief but potentially you're you're digging the hole deeper for disease in the f- future, right? Potentially yeah. masking it. 
Yeah, that is exactly it. So you, you, this is where being out in nature has been shown to be more effective at re-inoculating the, the digestive system after antibiotics than actually using probiotics. Beautiful. And from foods as well, like yeah, live culture Yeah, like prebiotics foods. and fermented yeah. foods, huge staple. Yogurt mixed with water, yeah. Um, then we yeah, going on to the amigas, for instance, the way that they're produced, they can be quite oxidized and rancid. And uh, this is even including of omega-3s, which people used to use a lot of and, you know, information is gradually coming more and more to light. And then in addition to that, we have all people which like to use um, isolated minerals. And the thing is, the body is so beautiful and harmonious that, yes, I am a big advocate of using isolated minerals for therapy or intervention or redemption. But you said zinc earlier on? Yeah, but the thing is here, it's like zinc will compete with copper. So most people may have a zinc deficiency. So rectifying the zinc would be good in a specific scenario. So let's say eating disorders or endometriosis, but long-term use of zinc could create a lot of issues because long-term use of zinc could actually inhibit beta, uh, dopamine beta hydroxylase, or it could inhibit the enzymes required for DHEA sulfate. So therefore the androgen production can actually be inhibited from long-term zinc, or it could actually act as a receptor antagonist. So this is where people actually think, okay, I'm going to take these supplements long-term and coming in and out as fast as you can to get the job done with as much therapeutic response to the body without creating risk is the goal. So yeah, it's not to really incorporate these, these kind of things in isolation. For instance, we could even look at magnesium to higher dose of magnesium create, can create intestinal permeability. We could look at vitamin D and taking vitamin D without magnesium can create issues with kidney stones, for instance. So this is why we need this synergy from all these different nutrients together and creating one may be an antagonist for others. And that synergy usually is like when you're taking it, when you're getting it as much as you can from the food. Exactly. The nature's already organizing the synergy to be harmonious and that intelligence that is, is there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But we may just need some kind of redemption or some therapeutic manner to override Definitely. a deficiency, yeah. but relying on it is not the, the, the key. Yeah, you know, beautiful. so like for for instance, with this chelation, I'm always an experiment. I love being a guinea pig, so that's why I'm trying out all this different stuff for melatonin. And I'm so like fascinated this. with that, man. I want you to keep me updated. How long have you been doing the melatonin? Ah, oh, six months. All right, that's all right. Let's see. After another six months, I'll be really interested. I mean, look at you, man. Like this interview, you're clearly go go go. You got a pretty bloody good memory. I know you got some <laughs> studies up, but like yeah. you know the statistics off the top of your head. thank you thank you honestly it's it's a huge huge thing which has um definitely helped another one which i'm not sure if i'm allowed to say or not but has been psychedelics on Mm -hmm. they have been something which has enabled me to improve my my memory and my learning and there's a difference between people taking it and abusing it and taking it to get fucked up and there's there's taking it to have that introspection and that learning and other aspects mm-hmm. so for instance like when i take dmt for instance i can go inside my body and learn how my body functions from all these different downloads without even researching so it's 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 without imagine like you have a lesson you learn and then you understand it just skips out the lesson and the learning you just instantly understand and i'll i'll, I'll get taught things like that i have to assess the swallowing mechanisms to um, survey and understand if someone's going to be developing Alzheimer's. That's just one example. 
Hmm. you know and that's reliant on the vagus nerve which i got told <laughs> so <laughs> so you know and <laughs> there's just things like this where i can learn phenomenal things which aren't even proven in literature yeah. and then i check it out and i'm like oh okay and then it ends up being like the studies on it in pubmed so uh that's another thing and that comes into that spiritual side and uh you know having that 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 connection and uh that connection can only really occur from when you let go of what you perceive as control because we really have so little control. And when we try to control stuff, we, we really stop that. And then when you kind of let go of that necessity to understand and necessity to be um, in control of certain situations and trust your gut instincts or trust your guides or whatever, you know, things become a lot more harmonious or serpendipitous let's say smooth flowing and yeah as you said connecting to that then you can cognize anything you know Mm -hmm. that's really like all knowledge is structured in consciousness so as long as you connect with that you can manifest i got a couple more things i want to just bring up easy this is we could go for fucking hours mate yeah yeah seriously (laughs) and and it's not it's being because it's so like bam 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 it's it's tolerable it's not like it's dragging so it's great so first thing to the gut um one component i want to ask about is a lot of heat which has been gaining recently is oxalates and lectins and the plant paradox came out by stephen gundry who basically said you know if you eat beans and grains it's he said it's like swallowing razor blades that literally cut the <laughs> lining of our intestines and he there was a video of him the other day saying see this apple this is like poison like which is right i guess i'd say reductionist and and not taking a bigger picture and saying well there can be poison but it can also be and obviously we didn't only now the carnivore diet's getting a lot of heat and saying mm. you, and, and it's, it's also just like man you are you weak like you can't even eat a plant and get like you can't even digest a plant which but then of course some people can't and i have compassion i see patients who who can't eat like an oxalate and and like f- have a flare-up or have you know some some issue so you know let's talk about oh, this is a good one okay so <laughs> so first of all let's look and at explain what diet. an oxalate and lectins are to, uh, yeah. when you when you get up to that but yeah carnivore diet so the thing is the like the carnivore diet like i understand it Right. I understand that 40,000 years ago, our brains were getting bigger. And then 38,000 years ago, they started reducing size due to what they put down to agriculture. I understand that we have canines in our mouth, which are there designed to bite into meat and that we have this vertical function of the jaw and that we don't grind our teeth from side to side. I understand that we are monogastric and we have one stomach. I understand that our hip structure and our postural alignment to be more upright and the shoulder function is designed for hunting. I get that. I eat meat. I did a plant-based diet for a while. I don't now. I experiment things. I also tried carnivore diet for a while. It didn't work for me. And neither of them did. A mixture is, is the one. I personally think the, the world today tries to say this diet is for everyone and like we just mentioned everyone is bio-individual everyone is unique for instance someone going back to endometriosis if someone's on a ketogenic diet that's going to be problematic because that's going to increase the 16 alpha hydroxy pathway which can create more of this unwanted 
kind of metabolite of estrogen that could create more cell proliferation. The human kind of culture was so diverse. And for instance, like when we look into Western A. Price, like we have um, Inuits, which live so far from the equator that they eat a lot of um, um, fats, so much fats. 80% uh, of the caloric intake, I believe, is fats and um, predominantly meat as well. And then for I believe it's anywhere from two to three months of the year that the tide comes out and they're actually able to forage on sea vegetables. So there is some element of vegetables there too, which can act as prebiotic in nature for the gut. But we can look at people close towards the equator and they may be actually consuming more carbohydrates. And yeah, I understand all this. But first of all, the, the ideology that our brain is reducing in size being a concerning factor is so reductionist because that's using the conventional framework to say that our mind our capability is based on size only right now we store things in the conscious field not just the brain but we store them in this energetic field around our body too this is how we can do kinesiology and look at past traumas and see how they're stored in the muscle for instance and this is how the psoas could be relating to stress or it could be how like someone with glute med issues could be having have uh, had previous sexual abuse or anything along the lines of this yeah so storing our memories and our, our cognitive abilities and reducing that down just to the aspects and the parameters of the size of the brain is a reductionist model it goes far beyond that. And then in addition to this, we can look at, well, going back 45 or well, 40,000 years ago, there wasn't vaccines loaded with aluminium or formaldehyde or green African monkey cells or cocker spaniel kidney cell protein cultures. There wasn't the chemtrails or the, the BPA or the fluoride in the water or the oral contraceptive pill or the lack of sunlight, the lack of grounding or the non-native electromagnetic frequencies. So all of these things which have changed so drastically since then when we look at how do we combat and mitigate these factors, well, like I mentioned earlier, we have like Corella, which can help us chelate metals. We have cilantro, we have curcumin, we have horsetail tea, we have zeolite clay. These aren't found in a carnivore diet. And these sort of things, when we look at heavy metals, these aren't something what you take for a week or two months and it's gone. A lot of these would need long-term intervention taken for a number of years because of that continuous exposure and accumulation in the body. So, the framework of the carnivore diet definitely worked 40,000 years ago, but we are not living the same lifestyle as we did back then. And because we are not living the same lifestyle, we require all these nutrients. When we look into cancer, it's rates between, I think it's one in two males and I think it's uh, possibly one in three females. So the, the cancer is, is ridiculously high. And then we look at how we can implement and address cancer. Well, there's many different therapies out there, but we know that high dose vitamin C intravenously works extremely well. We know that there's other therapies out there too. But again, carnivore diet, we don't get much vitamin C. I and know also eating meat during cancer is one of the, I think the worst things that can be done because you stimulate mTOR pathway, mm. the anabolic action, which promotes the cancer growth. Yeah, so we, don't, we definitely don't want to overstimulate it, you know. So when we look at this kind of whole carnivore approach, it's like I, I get it, but, I mean, even, like, don't get me wrong, right, so Paul Saladino is a great guy, but in because I, 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 I've been listening to his audiobook, 
but some of the studies what he references there, he compares compete, uh, eating meat to eating meat with fruit juice. And it's like you can't compare fruit juice mm. to this being the same as fruit. Fruit juice is going to lack its nutrient diversity. There's going to be a lot of oxidation in the, the nutrients there. So it's not really that comparable for that one study. Granted, there are other studies there, but there's there's definitely some 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 caveats to it and for instance my partner she tried the carnivore diet she she could not pass any stool right so then you then it's like well is it is it really applicable for the vast majority of people mm, not sure i mean there's there's indications there to a lack of prebiotic fiber to therefore which would lead to a lack of microdiversity within the gut there's limited options for vitamin c and i understand the amount required for which you need to mitigate against scurvy i think it's like 70 milligrams so it's not much but then you look at the benefits as well because we don't look at the you can't compare the nutrient intake of vitamin c and say oh well this is how much you need to not get scurvy <laughs> Hang on, for, for, for intravenous therapy for individuals with cancer, it can go up to 40, 50,000 milligrams injected into the vein. So we don't just use the RDA as a parameter to say, oh, well, we get that anyway, it's fine. We know the RDA is the recommended daily allowance, but it's also the recommended deficiency allowance. And it's not just the minimum intake, what we need to be hitting. And it's far difference between minimum wage versus the amount of money, what you'd like to be earning per year. And the difference in what you can do in that money is to Phenomenal. Same with the difference from the nutrient reserves, what you acquire from the from the food, what you eat, and the capabilities to elicit certain responses. We know that there's an increased likelihood for constipation with the carnivore diet. There's an increased likelihood for ammonia with the carnivore diet, and that's going to lead to issues potentially with the liver. And along with that, there may be an increased risk for TMAO, thiols, possibly decreased bifidobacterium, decreased lactobacillus, decreased glycogen reserve because you're not consuming any carbohydrates. There may be trace carbohydrates in the glycogen stored in the meat from the animals, what you're eating, but there is minimal intake of glucose. And then that could potentially even lead to peripheral insulin resistance. So peripheral insulin resistance is insulin resistance in the extremities, like the, the legs and the hands, because your brain needs this constant supply of glucose for functioning. But because you don't have the the glucose in the diet, it makes the areas which aren't necessary for instant life resistant to glucose to prevent its uptake to feed that supply to the brain. So therefore you can get this peripheral insulin resistance. It can also increase the susceptibility for stress because when someone's stressed, they'll have an increased level of cortisol. An increased level of cortisol will basically naturally innately make someone crave carbohydrates this is why people gravitate towards more junk food towards the end of the week or at the end of the day because they have been working and they've been acquiring all this stress and it's compounded and they know intrinsically on a subconscious level when they consume carbohydrates their body will release insulin that will lower the stress we know that it's dependent on their stomach acid function because the stomach acid is essential for the digestion and assimilation of food, meat, and also the conversion of pepsin to pepsinogen. We also know that it's possibly reliant on bile because the, you're going to have to eat a, 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 an increase of fats, saturated fats, because of the lack of carbohydrates. And then for individuals with APO4 polymorphisms or gallbladders removed or previous gallstones or other issues such as this, their ability to to actually digest the fats is going to be reduced. Another factor would be PEMT, which is another SNP. 
There's also possible contraindications for people with H. pleuri, which we know over 50% of the world's population has, and therefore H. pleuri would be in the parietal cells within the stomach and dysregulate H. cell production and therefore decrease their ability to digest and assimilate the protein. There's um, lowered levels of short-chain fatty acid production. There's... Um, potentially a higher risk of antibiotic exposure, which is used on the meat because we know that 84% of antibiotics created are used on livestock. And there's decreased sociability, which when we look at health, health isn't just limited to food. Health is also our lifestyle, our behavior, our enjoyment, our memories, our relationships. So therefore it decreases the opportunities for social interaction and therefore sociability. And that's a huge component. There's potential... um, deficiencies in um, boron, maybe vitamin E, I'm not sure there. And when we look at stuff like polyphenols as well, polyphenols can stimulate that NRF2 pathway. And in the book Carnivore Code by Paul Saladino, he says that there is not a cellular hormetic effect where you take something and on a cellular level, which will stimulate a minute response for NRF2, which would then stimulate glutathione production. He says that doesn't work like that. He, he basically calls it as a poison because it's just a low-grade poison. But then we can't he, – he differentiates between the use of cellular hormesis and environmental hormesis. And he relays on environmental hormesis is like cold exposure or training, and you create this breakdown. I personally think, well – in the modern day world, what we live in, we do need the cellular hormesis to increase that compensatory pattern of glutathione. So look at, for instance, coffee enemas. Coffee enemas can increase glutathione, um, GST enzyme uh, for up to 48 hours. And this is effective to mitigate against these huge health risks what we face in the world today from the new introductions of modern day man. So when we look at it, there's definitely some areas of concern to say the least but that being said it does have a huge element of success in some individuals it can increase satiety it can make it easier to adhere to the diet i understand that stuff like methylcobalamin vitamin b12 the only bioavailable source of that is from liver and the 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 most bioavailable nutrients is from meat and i completely understand that too understand that the higher protein intake can lead to mTOR stimulation uh, but it neglects one of the components for stimulating mTOR which is insulin stimulation there too and the individuals have to consume organ meats understand that they understand there's more collagen there's potentially more testosterone but there are some cons to it as well and again with the carnivore diet it comes as a byproduct because you're not consuming the pro-inflammatory allergenic antigenic foods which many people have issues with i think if individuals were able to survey the foods to see what they were able to tolerate and then consume those foods and exclude the ones which they were not able to tolerate that would be far better. And that just comes back to understanding the individual, understanding what they can and can't do and working with that. And not just leaving it that, like if you can't tolerate something, let's look at why you can't tolerate it. Something's gone wrong with the digestion and perhaps the liver. So let's fix that. And then perhaps you can slowly reintroduce the food once the digestion's fixed. Exactly. Yep. Yep. And yeah, I just want to fully emphasize that there's no one diet for all, as Jake said. And like the carnival diet, I think it's very minority of people because even if you're looking anthropologically speaking, like we didn't hunt that much. Like, you know, occasionally we'd, we'd catch a woolly mammoth or something. Like we'd be, we'd be doing a lot of 
gathering rather than hunting mm-hmm. as far as I've, I've researched, but, yeah. um, yes. And, and honestly, like even this, uh, Dr. Paul, the kind of OMD, I, I'd be curious to see, you know, in, you know, in another, I don't know, five, 10 years, how much he's still doing what he's doing now, because, you know, with all these diets, with that, with the vegan diet, all these fads, which even ketogenic diet, you know, full-time ketogenesis, like, which we've 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 never had we've never stuck to diets you know we the diets we've stuck to as a human race has been for generations and and thousands of years and as you said seasonally like nature's nature's providing what you need according to this you know in by seasonal harvest and local production and that's simple just eat the season that's that's the diet which has been going over for tens of thousands of years and you know what does a vegan diet last? Like you ask people, like they don't usually get past 10 years because, and I reckon the same will be happening with the carnivore diet. Yeah, exactly. It's just all the end of the spectrum, isn't it? Okay. So oxalates, we can produce them. Um, we can acquire them from food. And usually when I find people have kidney stones, I ask them if they've been consuming foods high in oxalates and it is extremely, in fact, it is all, all the time. So um, foods like, so, yeah, you've got extremely high foods, which is really worth avoiding. So I, I would say no matter what. And then you have foods which are high, which are worth moderating. So the foods which are extremely high in oxalates range from spinach, okra, beets, Swiss chard, rhubarb, hearts of palm, plantains, almonds, cashews, sesame seeds, buckwheat, amaranth, peanuts, chocolate, soy, and carob. So those are the ones which are extremely high and worth avoiding no matter what. But then we have the ones which are very high, and these range from aubergine or eggplant, uh, Jerusalem artichoke, potatoes, sweet potatoes, yams, blackberries, citrus peel, figs, guava, kiwi, pomegranate, star fruit, hemp seeds, chia seeds, Brazil nuts, hazelnuts, macadamia nuts, pecans, pistachios, walnuts. And then some spices range from cumin, ginger, turmeric, and black and green tea and cinnamon. So they're the, 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 the second list, what I listed off, they're the ones which you want to use in moderation. But the first list is the ones that you definitely want to avoid. I mean, now, I just want to go into that because like those lists that you def- you're saying you definitely want to avoid, like so many of them, what, like almonds, okra, all these things, they, they also have benefits. I mean, mm. the, the food's there for a reason, though, I would say. You know, I wouldn't say everyone avoid that, right? Like, if you have prone kidney issues or triggered by oxalates, then you know you can work on that. But I think we we shouldn't be so restrictive, right? So I I I personally never recommend spinach because Mm -hmm. of the high pesticides, the chlorine, and the oxalates. And then there are some what you cooking reduces the oxalates in spinach. Uh, yeah, it'll leach out into the water, but then if you use that water, then you'll get the oxygen. Yeah. But if someone's if someone's had kidney issues, like kidney stones, I would completely avoid yeah. these. Right. So, but like if someone hasn't had kidney stones, then you want to use these sparingly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but but sure. in terms of kidney stones, like. If someone has previously had them, we know that there's an issue with their uh, breakdown of oxalates. And usually it comes accompanied from a magnesium deficiency as well. So usually it's, it's high oxalate consumption with a lack of magnesium and then that creates problems. But still, nonetheless, if there is a history of kidney stones, I would say completely avoid the extremely high foods. Sure. Yeah. Cool. Um, uh, but I'd, I'd also avoid the high foods for individuals with high heavy metals. 
mm-hmm. on autism, fibromyalgia, and chronic fatigue syndrome. Okay. And fungal infections as well. Um, so just, just quickly on that is because the um, fungal infections can secrete oxalates themselves. And that will increase the oxalates in the body. And the oxalates then can create these crystalline formations and they can accumulate in certain tissues, not just the kidneys, but also areas such as the brain and other aspects similar to that too. Uh, anyone with um, autism, the oxalates can really um, create issues for the symptoms there. And they found that doing uh, taking antifungal treatments like nystatin, or uh, other antifungals have been shown to reduce the amount of oxalates found in the body. And as the amount of oxalates reduced in the body, the symptoms of autism decrease. And usually these um, oxalates are found in correlation to arabinose or other kind of candida markers because that fungal aspect producing the oxalates. In terms of fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue syndrome, the oxalates can... Um, bind onto heavy metals and stop them from being eliminated from the body. So that's a huge aspect in terms of fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue syndrome. So avoiding the extremely high levels there would be will be beneficial because you're allowing the body to kind of like chelate and effectively remove the heavy metals. And this is one aspect why I really don't like people consuming high levels of oxalates because of the heavy metals what we're all exposed to. And when we look into like firstborns, there's a great accumulation of firstborns, there's vaccines, everything else, aluminum deodorant. This is why if someone initially is doing a plant, I will really be limited on their oxalate consumption. Because when whenever I'm working with someone, I'd want to kind of therapeutically support the, the chelation and liberation of these these metals because we, we all have this accumulation in us. And then gradually incorporate the oxalates because it makes it less problematic. But then in terms of making the problem, uh, the oxalates more suited, vitamin B6 is a dependent nutrient for oxalates because when we look at protein consumption, there's this pathway where the oxalates can be converted through. And if we are deficient in vitamin B6, usually the innate production of oxalates can increase. So this is why we'd want to make sure the vitamin B6 is not deficient. And also the magnesium, we, we really do need to make sure the magnesium isn't deficient here because the magnesium is one way how it can help manage the oxalates. So magnesium citrate would be the best one to use. But in terms of the, the pathway with the B6, this is where um, you have like your hydroxyproline that can go through to glycolate hydroxypyruvate that's converted to uh, glycoxalate glycerate and then this is when we use b6 and we can convert that to glycine but if we don't have b6 then that glycoc that glyoxalate glycerate will convert to oxalate so this is where we, we really need to make sure we have b6 to stop the innate production from being as high mm-hmm. all right and yeah, I mean, I mean, when you see these carnivore diet and this uh, Stephen Gundry, they're really labeling these like, like <laughs> devils, but they're also food. So yeah, yeah. Like for instance, there are huge benefits. And see, spinach is one which I used to recommend, but now I really don't, simply due to the oxalate nature and the chlorine, the pesticides. 
It's so, interesting because in, in Ayurveda, they, they, they're actually very specific about you have to purify each vegetable a certain way and especially herbs. They have a mm. much more complex purification process. Like for eggplants, you soak it in salt water, even with some turmeric and all this black stuff comes out, then you cook it. And with the spinach, interestingly, it's you, you dip it into really um, hot water and like yeah. blanch it and then straight away put it into cold water different bowl of cold water mm, interesting. and then use it and that would I, I reckon would that deplete the water soluble vitamins yeah i mean <clears throat> a little bit but like it's the same with like raw food versus cooked food like although you're cooking food or, you're not getting the bad stuff and you can eat more yeah and some cases it's more the nutrients become more bioavailable like when you steam tomatoes it's more lysopene and when you anti you know when you artichokes Cooks, you get more antioxidants. Yeah. Um, Same with nuts and soaking them with reducing phytic acid. Yeah. And yeah. so they can easily be more easily digested. Then you're going to mm. get the nutrients. Like if it's raw and they don't have good digestion, then how are you yeah. going to digest that? So. Yeah, which I completely agree with. You know, it's like it's like when we look at this, uh, one one component of the carnivore diet is to say that animals have a defense mechanism when when they're alive they try to attack you plants have a defense mechanism when after you pick them they try to attack you and that's from these kind of phyto compounds which i understand to a degree some of them can be therapeutic and hormetic but when we look at the different cooking methods exactly like you just mentioned like soaking the nuts or blanching the spinach like you stated there you know these are ways that we can increase the bioavailability but also reduce the the implications from food like when we look at the rice for instance this is why you want to wash rice multiple times because you reduce the mold exposure from it this is why if you're going to go for coffee you'd preferably have mountain grown coffee from a high altitude and less molds grown on that there as well so the the techniques and where it's farmed and how it's sourced and how it's cooked is paramount in reducing the implications which can come along with it totally transformation of food is so important anything Mm. cool i think that's a lot we're gonna have to do a second episode if that's right with you jay yeah yeah that's some other time yeah we didn't even get into covid and as you can tell jake heavily researches his stuff and he did the same and is doing the same with with covid and that's how i came across jake actually from his instagram getting um true news and, and a real insight into what's going on Big time. And I wanted to ask, I was planning to ask you in the beginning, but especially when I found out about you, I think it must have been around the April-ish time, yep. even March, April, May. What was your screen time like, mate? You were on that Instagram uh, a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know what? Let me just have a look, see if I can find it up on here. Um, <laughs> it'd be interesting to see. Why you were in hotel quarantine, you were in hotel arrest, um, and you were just flogging the research out there. Yeah, for us to yeah. check out ourselves. It's like I can't find it right now, but it was it was too much. But I was I you know I was like <laughs> the government's put me in a hotel room where I'm not allowed out in the corridor. I can't even open a fucking window. So you know more full then because that's the worst mis- mistake they could have ever done with me. Because then I was just researching, researching. I was posting loads of posts on vaccines and the flawed studies there, what they use and the retraction of data and things like this. I'm posting about COVID, the, the propaganda-based material in the news and all these other aspects. And it was literally from waking up at 5 or 6 a.m., meticulous, nonstop, grinding hard on it through till about 10 p.m. at night for 14 days, and then wow. it continued before and after that, but um, that 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 
14 day period of being in quarantine was like when I was just just really kind of awakening stuff. Ironically, they've deleted all the posts now on my social media. Oh, wow. Why? Yeah. Oh, they have, yeah, of course they have. Yeah. yeah, and they've sent me messages saying they're going to delete my account. Mm. Uh, and then we discussed at the start, you know, MailChimp's been deleted, my email campaigns, and mm. uh, Gmail's been playing with me as well. So uh, Zoom's been playing with us. I mean, this is why we use Zencast or whatever it's called. So, you know, the, the software which we use uh, can suddenly take a turn on you when you create such things. I know people which have had their PayPal accounts froze and they're not being able to access the money in PayPal and totally, things like yeah. this. I mean, I, I was even getting death threats at one stage to the point where uh, I, I don't really believe in, in life or death. I believe it's just like we are just an extension of consciousness and just because we don't have that ability to comprehend what happens after death due to our limited visibility of the light spectrum, what we see and the naivety of the human mind, we, we basically think that is it, that is the end date, you know, since we can't comprehend what happens after it, I don't believe in death. So when someone's sending me a death threat like that, I just basically would video recall them, uh, video record the screen, try to video call them and none of them would answer the phone. So mm. it's quite funny because most people would probably be intimidated from it, but I actually welcome whatever happens. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah and um, I just want to ask on that because I think it's, I think now like it's, it's getting more, um, more heated up and more deeper into the darkness. And, um, you know, with, with in New Zealand, we're seeing the COVID camps, you know, resembling the concentration camps yeah. and in Victoria. It's, Right now, it's uh, the 22nd of August. It's really um, getting hot. And the yeah, they extended government. it, didn't they, an extra four weeks? Yeah, and, and what are they extending there? They're, the regulations are absolutely ridiculous and the Australian government wants to do mandatory vaccines. And I think people are, like, realising, even me, I'm considering stuff which I, I, people are getting insight into vaccines. People are really um, – it's allowing people to get a view onto these things. And I think now the big question for me and what I think people really need is what can we do to we really have to resist the tyranny and the dictatorship which is arising and a lot of people especially in the spiritual community things they're just bystanding this is it this is what don't want to, don't want to expose themselves they don't want to lose their following you know i do what posts this? about it and yeah. i get messages from people who are close to me and goes dylan like and, and i sure i get people pissed off and i lose followers but I don't know. I just, there's some things which, and I get it. Like I have to be relatable and kind of tread a little lightly for some people because it's triggering, but. Fuck that. You can't hide the truth, man. Like it's got to exactly. be said. Yeah. I'm not going to dilute myself because the world's too fragile. So when we look at this, I find integrity is becoming extinct. I have best friends which have less backbone than a, a piece of wet lettuce you know because they don't want to stand up for this sort of thing but yet they shiver in fear from what is brought upon them and in their environment and they are petrified with the possibility of forced medicine and all these other aspects but yet they don't have the courage to stand up and voice their simple own opinion which is integrity and they are scared of what other people will think of them. And they are scared of losing their business. But fuck that. I, I, I'm more scared about losing my freedom than my fucking business. And if, the, if, you're, if you're thinking about what other people are going to think about you, 
then you need to think more about what you think about yourself. Because if you don't have the integrity to stand up for your inner dialogue and your inner thoughts, your morals, your beliefs, your values, that's creating more harm than you can possibly ever imagine in the future years to come. Because it's making you more and more disempowered and weaker and weaker. Amen, brother. Speak yeah. out. Yeah, yeah, it pisses me off. It's going to be, really be a grassroots rising and it's, that's what it's going to be. You can't expect it to go from the top and no one out, no politician or anything. It's, it's got to come from the people. Uh, exactly. Resistance, peaceful civ civil disobedience, all this is very much required. All it needs is just everyone to stand up all at once, you know, not waiting for someone else to do it because and, and not everyone, like that. not everyone, no one, not everyone's going to do it. Just a good amount of people yeah if you have a voice use it if you have an opinion express it if you have a feeling don't hide it you know yeah. everyone just needs to stand up and just just and just voice what they think without the fragility of thinking that someone else might be speaking about them in a bad manner at the end of the day there's probably over 7.4 billion people i don't even know how many people in the world and you're not going to please everyone but the one thing what you have to do is make sure you protect yourself and please yourself there. Hmm. Beautiful. Cool. Mm. I think that's a wrap. Anything awesome. else you want to ask or mention to the audience? Where can they find your website would probably be the safest because Jake <laughs> is getting censored yeah. in all directions. Yeah. Uh, CoachJakeCarter.com. Um, we're going to be releasing an institute, Carter Institute, which is a 12-month certification program, uh, teaching 20 different seminars, ranging from some of the stuff what you just heard, many more. So keep your eyes out for that. And uh, I'd also keep your eyes out for the Rebirth program. We, we had huge success with the first run uh, with people who attended from over 12 different countries with over 60 participants. In the group, it's lost over 100 pounds of body fat in three weeks. And not everyone wants to drop body fat. You know, some people simply want to improve the psoriasis, which they've done so in the first week, despite them contemplating taking some medication, which would create lifelong implications for their heart health. Other people getting the fastest runtime, self-confidence, getting rid of depression. So the Rebirth group, what I've um, launched, it's an eight-week transformational program of the mind body and spirit which integrates education nutrition training lifestyle factors and everything else what we just heard into one umbrella with a support process and community there to nurture you along that way so keep your eyes peeled for that if any of the stuff what i've been speaking about has been of interest it's a cost-effective program um which is um, a third of the price of working with me directly simply because i've taken on two staff there so that is something where if you're feeling that your health is being challenged or you're, you're concerned that there is that what um, you can check out. But, you know, the key thing is making sure that it's the right thing for you because there's many different things out there and there's many different people. So you have to really contemplate if I am the right person, this is the right thing, and you're the right person for it. Beautiful. All right. Thanks, mate. Awesome. I appreciate that. Yep. What a wealth of knowledge. I know it's a lot, but that's what jay carter's got to offer bam 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 he's like a gun of knowledge so i hope you enjoyed if you appreciate that like the show subscribe leave a review and yeah i know i could just listen to that manchester accent all day i love it seriously let me know if you do <laughs> all right love you thank you for joining and i'll see you next time next week well we got some good stuff coming up let me tell you we got talking about herbs the essence with some of the biggest very big herb dealer, the owner of Organic India and 
and really the distribution of of metric tons of herbs and what that means for the environment, where they're getting the herbs from, what sustainable herbs and sparking an organic revolution of herbal products, of herbs themselves. And we've got some good stuff coming up. So make sure you subscribe to the show. Check out the newsletter for more detailed information and Instagram, of course, Vital Veda. Until next time, much love.